0: And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. This episode is sponsored by 5.11 Tactical, a company that I've used for around 14 years now and continue to use to this day. And they are offering you, the audience, a 15% discount, not on one purchase, but continuously. And I'll give you that code in just a moment. But I want to do a product showcase on their new Atlas sneakers and boots. So I'm a big believer in the fact that footwear can either improve our health or break down our health. And the Atlas sneaker actually has a new foam system that disperses the body weight, whether just the body weight, whether it's a a vest and a gun, whether it's EMS bags being carried. And on top of that, they're lightweight, despite having the same protection that's required in the tactical space. So I have a pair of Atlas sneakers myself, and I can attest they're extremely comfortable. On top of footwear, of course, 5.11 offers a gamut of uniforms and equipment, whether it's plate carriers, backpacks, flashlights, you name it, they have it. All you have to do is go to 5.11tactical.com and use the code SHIELD15. That's S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5 at 5.11tactical.com, and you will save every time you purchase. And to learn more about the company, 5.11 Tactical, you can listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 446 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute pleasure to welcome on the show, Ben Strong. Now, Ben is a veteran hotshot in the wildland community. He is also a human performance coach and an elite athlete himself. So we discuss a host of topics from the physical standards in the wildland community, mental health, some of the factors that are contributing to more and more lives lost, both civilian and fire in the wildland environment, and so many more areas. Before we get to that conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Each five-star rating, just taking that moment to do that rating, helps elevate this podcast, making it more and more visible, therefore easier for others to find. And this is a free library of some of the greatest minds on planet Earth. And all I ask in return is that you share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Ben Strong. Enjoy.
1: Well, Ben, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time. Your backdrop is beautiful that I'm seeing that you're doing this outside. So welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast.
2: Hey, man, thank you very much. I'm extremely excited to be here.
1: Now, I was racking my brains because it was a while ago that we initially connected. Do you remember who connected us, who the mutual friend was?
2: I don't recall it. I remember we, we did, talk, I think it was, we talked during fire season and my mind tends to sort of wander during those days. So I'm yeah. not really sure. Yeah, I know. Do, it. You, do you remember?
1: I don't. And, and there's so many people that could have been, I don't want to prattle out a bunch, but whoever it was, firstly, thank you. And secondly, please reach out and kick me up the ass and tell me that it was you. Yeah. So <laughs>
2: <laughs> for, for sure.
1: All right. Well yeah. then um, I'm looking at, you know, what I'm seeing in the background. So tell the audience where you are on planet earth today.
2: Yeah, man. So I live in uh, in a small town called Garden Valley in uh, Northern California, which is uh, about a hour-ish east of Sacramento and maybe another hour-ish west of South Lake Tahoe or the Tahoe area in this nice little rural community up in the hills.
1: Beautiful. So you get to ski quite easily up there then. Oh man, it's,
2: uh, it's uh, kind of the best, man. We have days, like right now it's going to be near 70 degrees and, um, the trails are awesome. There's, I can be in the mountains, snowboarding at any moment, mountain biking or down at the ocean surfing, uh, pretty much at the within a day like no problem so it's a pretty pretty plush pretty exciting uh spot that i'm extremely grateful <laughs> to be living in beautiful i'm, I'm jealous yeah. we just
1: got back from uh snowboarding we had to go to utah to do it there's no snowboarding in oh, florida yeah. <laughs> yeah
2: i imagine not yeah i think i was watching actually something super hilarious uh you know how you get lost in those like youtube holes and i was watching this uh, thing where they're saying uh they're going around each state's highest elevation. Like what's the highest place, uh, elevation wise in each state. And I think Florida was like, you know, below a thousand, like a couple hundred feet or whatever it was. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Like 12 and a half. (laughs) Yeah. Something like that. Super funny.
1: Okay. Well that's where you're living now. So tell me where you were born and then tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings.
2: Yeah, no problem. So, uh, where I was born in Southern California in, uh, orange county in the city of orange um my parents had us live in there the first eight years of my life before we moved up to garden valley here but um pretty simple pretty awesome childhood uh my dad was my parents had me super young so i'm the first of four kids Um, i I have a sister and then two younger brothers and uh my mom was a stay-at-home mom she had me like you know, right after she turned nineteen, a couple months after she turned nineteen or so, I believe. And um, my dad was, I think, twenty-two, maybe getting ready to turn twenty-three, something like that. So they were super young parents trying to figure it out, but we had a lot of good family support. You know, my mom's family was from the Tustin area and they they're pretty close to us. And so we had a the, the family dynamic was pretty awesome and and honestly, like I remember my childhood being pretty Pretty awesome. Pretty average. Like, there, I don't recall ever having a moment where I was really struggled or had to question whether or not I was loved or anything like that. So, I, you know, as far as like uh, privilege goes, like I felt pretty, pretty stoked. It's something that I reflect on sometimes.
1: Yeah. Well, you probably I don't know if you heard uh, any of the episodes, but I, one thing that I was really, my eyes were open to a few years ago was the element of childhood trauma in you know the rest of our journey as we progress into adulthood. Um, in, yeah. I listened to you on the Anchor Point podcast, but I couldn't tell. I think I started the car up because I turned it off because I went to a meeting. And I couldn't tell if it was you or the host that was talking. But one of you mentioned losing your mother when you were 12. Was that you or was that the other gentleman?
2: Yeah, that was the host. Okay, yeah. gotcha. So that yeah. wasn't your
1: own personal thing then?
2: No, no. I, you know, I really didn't. Honestly, I didn't really experience any... Uh, I don't remember experiencing any real loss or, uh, childhood trauma or any kind of just trauma in general until I honestly joined the fire service. And that's where, and that's when things, uh, you know, then that's when I started, you know, struggling with like, or seeing the, you know, loss and the realities of life probably a little more tangibly.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, when I listen to you talk now, you know, and, and your, as we'll get into it when you had that self-realization and you started seeking the tools, I think that's you know, that that's probably partly because you had that great structure as you were growing up. And I think that's sadly what happens to some of our men and women that already had that trauma coming in, is by the time they get to that point that we're gonna talk about later, they it's crushing for them by that point. So it's an interesting observation to see, you know, how that pays in with either coping skills
2: or or not. Mm yeah yeah definitely i, I think that's 100 percent on point
1: well as far as athletics clearly uh you yeah. have to be somewhat capably physical <laughs> to uh to be a um a hot shot so tell me about your kind of school-age athletics
2: yeah so i mean shoot my parents got us involved in sports right away uh as as young people so you know uh, the, the sports of choice for me growing up were pretty standard for most kids. You know, you play the soccer, you play the t ball. Um, and as I grew, I think right around age 12 or so is when I really grabbed it, started gravitating a lot more towards soccer, excuse me. And so, uh, shoot, that's what I, I aspired to be some sort of soccer player uh, at some point, you know, like outside of high school. This is what I dreamed to be as a kid. So I became pretty obsessed about it. And then, uh, you know, once I got into high school, um, you know, soccer kind of was my focus as far as actually in a lot of ways, kind of my life, like I kind of lived, breathed and uh, ate soccer. And then I started realizing that, Man, if I really wanted to be a good soccer player, I needed to uh, have like this really able body that could be uh, maybe go a little harder, a little longer than other people. And I kind of found that um, that was kind of where my strengths lied anyway. So I uh, started uh, running track. And I did mostly the sprint stuff, I ran the mile, did the long jump um but this is where you know high school junior year or whatever is probably where my obsession around physical fitness really started to i would imagine take hold um my my folks lived when, you know I, like i mentioned before when i was 8 my parents moved us up to the to the foothills of northern california and so my folks lived i don't know maybe 5ish miles away from the high school and i would regularly uh run back and forth to school uh just to just to get a leg up on people to, so i could <laughs> run harder and longer in in, in athletics what, um which position did you yeah. play i played uh primarily right wing okay in the midfield yeah beautiful
1: yeah it's it's a very very physical game i was always uh usually midfield or or even in left or left back usually because i'm left footed but i i don't know if you had the same thing look like we're kind of similar build, but i was never the explosive guy same in martial arts i wasn't the guy that was gonna win the first round but if you beat me in the uh-huh. head for two rounds i didn't go down and you were tired
2: <laughs> that was, yeah, yeah, that no was it yeah yeah I, I you know i was a pretty speedy guy i could race i could i run pretty dang quick and i, I felt like i had the ability to beat most people to the ball um if you asked me to dribble a ball like more than five or six times, I was probably going to lose it because I had horrible foot control, <laughs> ball Every- <laughs> control, but I could get it to, I could get it to somebody and hopefully get by it. So that was about, that was about as good as where I made it, <laughs> but it's still something I enjoy. Like even now as an adult, it's uh it's a good way to get outside and, and uh, show competitive and have fun with people. It's so I still play it to this day.
1: Yeah. Well, that's an interesting conversation that I ask if, you know, a few people that are in athletics an observation I made coming from England, I've, I've mentioned the same discussion in uh, previous episodes, is because football is our main sport, soccer, um, you tend to see, you don't see that kind of peak, peak um, level at school age, but you do see longevity. You get people graduate from school and they play local leagues and they play, you know, like pub leagues or whatever it is. But they play a lot of times into their, you know, 30s, 40s, 50s. And then when I moved to the US, you saw this high, high level of competition, you know, as gyms and all the on the high schools and all that stuff. But then you had that kind of Uncle Rico syndrome where someone will get hurt or they graduate high school or college. And then their, their physical fitness journey were kind of, slam into a brick wall so um what i'm seeing as a common denominator is the sport of soccer football really seems to be the kind of sport where you can compete at a high level but still be in good shape not be broken where once you graduate from whatever establishment you were playing for you can keep playing it
2: yeah man for sure i think uh yeah absolutely i mean there's no slide tackling in the leagues i'm playing in so it's pretty you know it's there's like this uh gentleman drool or the this common understanding like hey man we all got day jobs too so <laughs> but it's uh i think so i mean i'm still playing and i'm almost 40 years old now and i honestly just love besides the physical aspect of the game um and the you know the the in shapeness or whatever the the cardio the, the how it keeps you just uh in shape is pretty awesome but also because it's, i find it to be sort of like a chess game you know i like to play on the pitch and see how the ball moves and how to set up plays and it kind of keeps my mind kind of sharpened in some aspects
1: beautiful well then what about the journey you were hoping to be a professional football player so how did that shift to you joining the fire service
2: Ooh, good yeah so you know you get to a point in your life and you're like yeah I don't think uh, becoming a professional soccer player is probably going to be in the cards you know like I came from a school That was my graduating class was like 64 people or something like this. You know what I mean? So, uh, you, you become very aware that, uh, schools that have a much larger population can, uh, pull, uh, students that are much better than you. And when you get to play those people, you kind of realize how quickly you're, you're maybe just not as good as they are. And that's not, that wasn't a disappointment to me. That's fine. I've always been fairly good at like observing those kind of things and then redirecting my energy. Um, but also, so how this, this translates, uh, into me going to the fire services, I just didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life. I always liked the team aspect with sports and, and kind of doing, um, you know, working together to accomplish a mission for lack of a better word. And I thought being a firefighter kind of embodied some of that, even as a high school student. So, um, you know, it, uh, there's a ROP program that there was a program at my school, uh, that uh, allowed you to get on-the-job training and basic certifications um, to enter the fire service pr- pretty much almost right away after graduating high school. And, and so I took advantage of that and and got some exposure to some folks and kind of saw like, oh man, this, is, this relates a lot to what I actually enjoy doing, uh, playing soccer and doing athletics. So It just seemed like a natural kind of progression and that's really really where uh i ended up landing and and the physical aspect of becoming a wildland firefighter was uh i mean really really was i called to me in some way
1: well you mentioned the rop program in in the anchor point podcast i was listening and that's another reoccurring theme that's really come out of all these conversations I'm so fortunate to have, and that's the power of mentorship. And I don't know if it's the same in the Wildland Fire Service, but definitely in in you know structure, there's a big um, diversity conversation, and rightly so. You know, you want your department to represent the men and women in the cities and counties that you serve. However, yeah. the the poor management take on this is that you go around and you find a bunch of people that fit. The pigmentation, the sexual orientation, whatever it is, and you check the boxes and you fling them out there and that's it. What I've seen is an incredibly positive um, solution to that that's actionable and creates phenomenal male and female firefighters is mentorship. So, Whether it's, you know, as we saw in in the film, Eric Marsh giving Brendan McDonough a chance after, you know, his (laughs) his drug problems, or whether it's Mm -hmm. a friend of mine, Chris Hickman, that has a firefighter mentorship program here as well that's free. So it doesn't matter where you live, doesn't matter what your background is, if you can make it to that place, you will get free training. There's scholarships into the fire academy. There's a pretty smooth transition from that into um, local fire departments here. So... How how much um, weight do you give that ROP program for your own personal journey, somewhat uh, directionless after realizing that professional football wasn't going to be your route to <laughs> to allow you to, to be guided into a positive um, uh, profession that we inhabit?
2: Wow, that's a really good question. I, I could uh, honestly say I don't think I've reflected on that much. So that brings up... Uh, some, uh, unintended or unexpected gratitude because there for sure were people in there that were mentoring me along, um, that maybe I, I haven't really realized until this moment. Um, so I, I think, I think it was, I think that was great, you know, but you're a high school kid too, man. You're taking these classes in reality. You're just so, you don't really know what the hell you even want to do in life really. You know, and there's the the specific moment that I can remember where I was like, okay, I'm gonna give this a shot. Was a day where we, in inside that ROP program, we did a day of line construction out in the field for wildland fire, and, and really, I didn't I didn't really have any desire to be a wildland firefighter when I first started this journey. I wanted to be a structure guy. I wanted to be on the red trucks. I wanted to be in the cities and 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 doing those types of things. Like it just seemed. Uh, that seemed like more exciting to me. And honestly, I didn't know shit about what even a wildland firefighter was, you know, like growing up as a high school kid wanting to be a fireman. That's not the first thing that goes to your mind. So, uh, but the, as far as the mentorship goes, it's that day when I'm out there cutting line and I'm, uh, you know, I'm, it, it was an all day affair. We're slamming tools into the earth, you know, digging, dig in this control line simulated and there's people from the forest service, the agency that I work for there from, uh, and they're telling you how to do it and they're coaching you and they're, and they're taking the time to, uh, help you understand how to be successful within that given tactic there and, or objective. And, uh, I remember a couple people, um, in particular and, uh, And then maybe that was the first time I actually got that kind of mentorship within that world that made me, uh, realize like, Hey, this could be something because after that, after that, that day, we were pulled aside by me and me and my buddy were pulled aside by a couple of the forest service guys that are helping teaching us. And they're like, Hey, you should apply. And that showed, you know, they showed interest in us and I was like, Whoa, that's pretty crazy, man. I'm just barely 18 or 19 years old at the time. And, uh, but yeah, man, I think that's an interesting question that you asked me because I don't know if I've reflected on the people within that program that definitely were mentoring me and there's something for me to, to chew on there for a little bit outside the mentor out, outside the mentorship of my, my parents, like my, my mom and dad and my, my grandfather and my grandmother, like they were always excited that I was doing something like this. And the the fact that I could get a job straight out of high school two days after graduating was you know, I had zero desire to go to college. So, uh, this was, this was, this probably excited them, excited me. And, but yeah.
1: Yeah. And I think that's, that's an important point. Like needing mentors in your life doesn't mean that you don't have great parents, but if your parents have nothing to do with mechanics, carpentry, power line work, fire department, whatever it is, then it's up to us, you know, I'm using the term yeah. loosely, leaders in the professions already that are looking for the next generation and helping to bring them up rather than being that dude and the lazy boy rolling your eyes because the new guy doesn't know what they're doing.
2: <laughs> well, for sure. And, and honestly, uh, you know, so I drive by the place every day that I took that ROP class to go home. I drive by it every single day to get to my house. And uh, just the other day, I... Uh, saw the kids going to school there <laughs> getting ready to take that class I was like, oh man, you know what I should go talk to these people and I was like because just like you said like there's there's a there's a mentorship opportunity there to talk to these kids like hey man like I did I was exactly where you were at and look at me now <laughs> I'm running my own hotshot crew and uh, I think there it's I think that's that's kind of maybe speaks to what you're saying so
1: Absolutely. Well, with your own personal journey in the fire service, you had a history of of you know playing sports physically. How well were you prepared for the the entry
2: level? Um, I think I was uh, well well when you're nineteen years old, freshly turned nineteen, you're uh you think you're indestructible and undefeatable. So, you know, I thought I was probably the shit. And that very quickly uh, was that, per- that idea of myself was very quickly changed the first time we did, uh, a hose lay on a fake perimeter on a fire, um, up a hill. And I was like, holy crap, this is really, really hard. Um, but as far as like physical training from the day to day, I was me and my buddy were probably cause my buddy got the same job as me you know, on the same engine the same day two days after graduating high school so it was pretty awesome but we were the most i would say probably uh most physically fit but when you start rolling hose and pulling hose and spraying water and uh humping hose packs up the hill that way you know 60 pounds or whatever and going back and forth and doing that for all day like that what my ass um but those kinds of things have always been a challenge that i was willing to try and uh Well, first I would recognize it and then try and better myself. I kind of enjoy that aspect of physical training. is not being good at something, but trying to become better at it. Yeah,
1: it was interesting for me. I I was trained in Florida and as as we mentioned before, it's very, very flat. Um, And I don't even remember, I swear to God, I don't remember any wildland training whatsoever. So I'm sure it was a chapter in some, you know, lecture in in the, the minimum standards, but had a couple of um you know small fires in in the brush in Florida, and we have the palmesos so they're they're actually surprising because they're green and they burn like crazy, but <clears throat> nothing that's really running, no topography to to kind of hinder us and then I got hired in California, Southern California and We start this wildland training. Like, oh, we're going to do progressive hose lays. I'm like, progressive hose lays? Is that like hose lays that (laughs) that are okay with people from all walks of life? Or what are we talking about? (laughs) And they're like, no. And so it was so new to me, cutting line, you know, the wild, even just like wearing the wildland gear. So um, I think a lot of people in the municipal departments don't understand, especially when you're getting into more mountainous areas, just how taxing, you know, just getting the end of a hose line to to you know a fire or cutting line I mean just just a a three three foot amount that you've scraped is I mean we just did an absolute snapshot on our training and I was like holy shit people do this for days and weeks at a time and I'm tired and we did
2: it for an hour right yeah I mean shoot dude it's that's uh it's pretty funny so like we we do. It's not funny, I guess, but it's a it's a different type of thing, you know. So, like, my brother worked with me on a hotshot crew, and he's been on. He was on hotshot crews for a number of years for the agency I worked for, and he uh, he works for Redwood City Fire now. And and we were bullshitting the other day when we were doing that that Goggins challenge and, and he, we were just talking about the difference of physical fitness. Like I was asking him cause he looks big. He looks way bigger than he's ever been. Not, not in like a chubby way, but in a like uh, you know, wider shoulders, just strength wise, he just looks strong. And he says like, yeah, man, we just move heavy shit really quickly all the time. And I'm like, okay, that's, that's pretty cool. And it backs up with kind of some of the research that we see where coming out of Missoula, they have this, cool triangle and each point um uh has a represents something so it's strength speed and endurance and if you take a, a structure firefighter you can you can put them almost almost directly in the middle maybe a little bit more uh uh leaning towards the speed and strength stuff but almost right in the center as far as like what they need to be successful at their job physically and, and a wildland firefighter specifically hot shots is where they get this data from is almost right in the bottom of, uh, endurance. <laughs> so it's, it's pretty, it's pretty interesting, but yeah, it's like we, that's, that's the point of our job is to, we tell the new guys coming on every, every year, man, this is a marathon, like be ready to go all season long for six months, just doing this thing, hiking hills carrying things that weigh a fair amount between, you know, 45 to 100 pounds and you got to be able to keep a pace all day just cutting line, moving bushes and walking, lots of walking.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's funny cuz I've heard, you know, many wildland firefighters say, "Oh, I I could never do the structure firefighting." And then the the structure guys say, "I'm well, like I could never do the wildland." And it is, I mean, they are kind of two different types of of men and women. And even in Anaheim, they actually had quite an aggressive wildland component to them. And they had OES vehicles and all that stuff. But um, even then there was a separation. The guys that were lining up to deploy and the guys like myself was like, right, while you're gone, I'm going to protect this city. Let me know how
2: you get on. (laughs) Yeah. But but the the culture is, I think pretty similar, which is funny. I just got back from New Mexico and uh, my, to visit, I was visiting my best friend who's a, works for Albuquerque fire. And he works in the busiest station in, within that city. And uh, I had misjudged what time he needed us to be down there. So I had a flight that I showed up really early and he was still on shift. And he's like, well, man, you should come over to the station and do a ride along. And I was like, okay, that sounds pretty awesome. I've never done that before. And even though the job was much different, there was, and and mind you, we went to three calls when I was there, a vehicle accident, um, like a, a patient of some sort that was on hospice and then a, a fire, like a structure fire. Like, so I was like, Oh dude, we just hit like the the trifector, in my opinion. And I kind of got like a little taste of what they do, but the brotherhood, the family, the, like the shit talking, the, the just camaraderie in general, I was like, man, this is almost identical to what I experienced within my job. So I think the, the cultures aren't too far off. Maybe the job is different, but the, the people are, are pretty similar. Yeah.
1: No, there's definitely definitely a, a parallel journey. Just like you said, it's a different kind of skill set. With yeah. um with entry, one thing I've noticed that I think fosters a lot of camaraderie is is setting the bar high, you know, going through that kind of crucible to achieve the position that you have, whether you're a hotshot, smoke jumper, whatever it is. Um, what were the kind of entry tests for you? And then do you have annual retests to maintain that level?
2: Yeah, man. So here's where it gets tricky, uh, in my line of work is our only requirement from a physical standpoint to be a wildland firefighter for my agency is the, is a pack test, um, which is a 45 pound pack, um, you have to, well, you have to wear a 45 pound pack, walk three miles in under 45 minutes. And, uh, that is a, in my opinion and many others, uh, a fairly doable situation and maybe a, a too low of a standard, um, to get in, to do our job based on what our job actually requires us to do, which is to have a physical fitness that's, in our opinions, much higher than that. But, um, you know, hotshot crews, we have, we have, uh, it doesn't, to me, it doesn't really matter. We're always going to expect our folks to be able to do more, um, because we want them to be, uh, extremely physical fit, physically fit, because that's just going to make the job. A, it's going to make it more enjoyable. We're going to be safer. We're going to be more efficient. We're going to make better decisions. And I think everybody can understand that. That's the the, the better you are, uh, physically, the, the more shit you can do and the safer you can do it. So I like to tell my folks and it's, it's pretty difficult sometimes because, uh, you know, hiking is primarily our job. So we really try and tell folks and we try and get to the folks. Once we know who we're going to be hiring, we get to these folks right away and start that mentorship, like almost immediately and letting them know, like we schedule runs, we schedule hikes, things like this. Um, but it's not uncommon to see us, uh, you know, be able to run 10 miles. If I say, Hey, today we're going to run 10 miles. that Like everybody should be able to do that. Um, but we do a lot of load carry stuff. So we do a ton of hiking and, and, uh, mostly body weight calisthenics. But as far as like a standard, um, we really don't have one besides the the pack test unfortunately
1: do you retest the pack test every year
2: every year you have to do the pack test yep to get your red card so if you fail you don't get to be a wildland firefighter anymore yep you don't get your red card to go fight fire that year yep yeah
1: so does that surprise you on the municipal side there are a lot of agencies that once you take your initial physical test you're not held to any standard after that
2: I would say that is surprising. I didn't know that.
1: Oh, yeah. It's it's rampant. So, that,
2: so you, take, you take, on your side, you take one test, and when you're done with that, that's it? Yes.
1: So again, I always preface this. There are some great departments out there that are the anomalies <laughs> right. that totally understand what I'm talking about. They hold their people. They said right from day one, you're going to be held to the standard. But what has happened that I've seen, and bearing in mind I've worked for four departments now, so I've got a print as East and West Coast, so I've got a pretty good um, understanding, then a fifth one that I, I did volunteer for for a bit. Um, some of them are more progressive and they actually have a test that they do, but uh-huh. it's kind of smoke and mirrors because there's no – nothing comes from it if you fail, so there's no punitive at it now my thing is this it's not about headhunting every firefighter that's not a physical rock star quite the opposite if you maintain right. it from day one like you guys you don't get the opportunity to start falling behind you know you you mean, you, you know it's coming every year what we see now is we, we do think or well, cpat a lot of the, a lot of the country at the moment yeah. and just like you said with the pack test it's it's a good attempt but honestly, the time that people are given to do it, I think, is a little piss poor for what we're required to do. It's really not that hard. And I actually just redid it a couple of years ago myself at 44 years old and was still, you know, way, way under where it needs to be. Um, but my point is, now you get people that are deconditioned. Now those people get into administration or they get into the unions and now they oppose these fitness standards so all the men and women in there that get it that are trying to stay safe that are trying to stay in shape that understand that this pertains to our ability to do a rescue they're fighting uphill to try and maintain that so i just interviewed a um a lifeguard in hawaii and the lifeguard industry has an annual standards wildland has an annual standards but municipal very few do many many don't and i think that's sadly, one of the reasons why we see some of the, the ill health and line of duty deaths that we do.
2: Yeah. I have a couple of questions for you because this is uh, something that comes up within my agency all the time. It's like, Hey, we do have this annual thing and, and you're making me actually see it for a different perspective. Uh, honestly, because having that annual thing actually does maybe hold people to a, a an annual standard, uh, going year after year. Our job is incredibly physical like even if we didn't have the the, even be even though that thing is maybe sub optimal our our I don't want to use the word standards because I probably shouldn't but like the what we are trying to hold our Crew the level that we need people to be able to work at to be effective at our job is way fucking higher than the goddamn pack test And and that's what we expect our guys to meet day one. They should be ready to kick ass but um we've been trying like hell this conversation comes up all the time. Like how do we, how do we develop because the smoke smoke jumpers have a different pack test. They have a different standard that they have to pass to be able to get their red card to fight fire. And so, you know, hotshot crews are known for being the best at what they do within wildland firefighting. I would, I would say all day that we're probably the best wildland firefighters in the world. Um, due to our training and the amount of fires that we, we go to. Um, and so there's the argument to like, well, why don't we have a better standard beyond the pack test to, to test on? And my opinion on this has always been, well, the science behind the pack test is actually pretty legit. Um, it was developed a long time ago. Um, and, and, and if you look into what it's telling you, it actually makes sense. But at the end of the day. If you want to have a higher standard, the leaders of the modules need to make sure that that takes place. So is that something within your department that you think is more lacking? Is that uh, leadership within stations or cities or departments are not pushing our folks to be more physically fit? Or do you actually think a standard would fix that problem?
1: Um, Yes and yes. Because yeah. as, uh, I forget who it was now, someone I spoke to recently was like, you shouldn't need SPAN standards. And I think it was someone in the special operations community, but I agree 100%. And, and I'm sure that you, you know, the, the the community that you inhabit, the community that I inhabit, the men and women that I used to work out with every shift, it doesn't matter. There's a standards because we're going to work out regardless, you know. Right. right. You, you have, as I point this out a lot, you have that very lower percentile depending on your hiring practices and standards and everything that might be larger or smaller. But that's the group of people that just got through the cracks and come hell or high water, they're going to do the bare minimum. There's nothing you can do about them. But that chunk in the middle, below the highly motivated and the highly unmotivated, is a group that you can really, really influence with leadership. A group that wants to do the right thing, but kind of can also find themselves dragged down by the wrong thing, depending on on the environment. So I think that's where the standards come. If you set the bar high and at the front door when people walk through here's their expectations, then 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 you it's hard to slip from that. It's hard to say, oh, but you didn't tell me. From day one, if you're a you know, a Navy SEAL and you went through BUDS and Hell Week, you know damn well what's expected of you and those those guys are held to a standard. And if they don't meet that standard, they're not in the SEAL program anymore. So, Mm -hmm. I find Mm -hmm. it so hard to comprehend that in our community that's been allowed to happen, that we've removed the standards. And I have to be very, very clear, and we're going to talk about this in a minute, another side of this coin is that many, many departments are in an environment that sets them up for failure when it comes to wealth and fitness, Excuse me, health, health and wellness, <laughs> wealth. Um, but you know, I mean, we're we're sleep deprived, we're we're understaffed, we're overworked, so that absolutely then sets the seesaw on the on the wrong way as far as you know lack of motivation, testosterone levels um you know Mm -hmm. motivation Mm -hmm. all that stuff so that's the thing it's like it's not blaming one entity it's taking all these elements that we can control and putting our standards up with the lifeguards with the wildland firefighters with the special operations community where it should be because while you're out on a hillside cut in line there's a municipal department running on your family and you're expecting them to be the same level that
2: you are yeah yeah for sure i mean I think what you said too is also super true about the, uh, you you know, the having a standard that's supported by the agency that you work for or whatever, that's uh, at a level that sets a good expectation. That sets the expectation for the people entering there. Like, okay, I know I got to be here. Um, I think that's a pretty legit way to look at that and, i mean that's something we do with our people on my crew too you know it's like they all know the, what the practice is that most of them all of them know that they're going to be taking the pack PAC test and that's not really that you know that's really not where they their fitness needs to be but within you know the first once i get a list of folks that i'm working with it comes i, I shoot out a, a welcome letter and i talk about what we're going to be doing from a physical fitness standpoint like hey this is what you to be here's what's to be expected Here's what the first couple of weeks are going to look like. It's going to be shitty and we're going to be pushing you guys. So be ready day one because here's what you're going to, here's what's going to happen. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, man, I think that's, I think that makes sense for sure. Now
1: with the pack test, are you doing it, um, up through the the mountains or are you doing it flat? It's flat ground. Okay. Yeah. So that's another area that's probably not as realistic.
2: <laughs> for sure it's really <laughs> good at, it's really good at give, giving people shin splints that's about that's all it's good for <laughs> <laughs> all
1: right so so you went in you know, your your fitness level was good you you know you found yourself into the hot shot program um when did you personally start becoming aware of mental and or physical wellness challenges in the wildland community
2: Um, so just to, I mean the physical fitness stuff. So the first five seasons of my career was on an engine. So I, I knew right away that the physical fitness was going to be, was there just based, based on the fact that the first time I did a hose lay, it kicked my ass. Um, and you know, from there it's like, okay, I really want to be a hotshot at some point. And, um, after some, some pretty cool experiences in my life. And so I got a hotshot crew and, I was I was ready for it because I had I knew what it was all about after you know five seasons of already fighting fire so our, I was always pretty aware of the physical fitness challenges, um, basically just from doing the job and being exposed to to people that you know had mentored me honestly since we keep talking about mentoring like have told me like hey man you need to be ready for this if, if this is what you want to do so that none of that stuff really was a surprise to me, um, but the mental health stuff. Uh, Man, I think the first time I dealt with something that was challenging for me mentally was my very first season. And <laughs> I jump around a lot because I got ADD, but on the Anchor Point podcast, I talked about losing a friend uh, my first season. Um, and that was for sure um, pretty challenging. But there was something even more challenging, or not more challenging, but another type of challenge where I had to, we went on a suicide call where someone had hung themselves down along a river uh, out in the middle of nowhere. And we needed to go uh, get them out of the tree and then transport, port them to the ambulance. And that was the first time I had ever experienced any kind of real death and uh, like physically, like in contact with it, like, moving the person had to go up in the tree and cut them and lower them down. And, um, I was 19 years old and I feel like, I mean, shoot, I remember very clearly that entire experience. Um, and back then there wasn't really a lot of like, uh, Oh, you dealt with this. Um, let's talk about it type of thing, you know, like no peer support. It was just like, all right, tomorrow is the new day. Let's get back to work. Or even moments after that experience happened, you know, it's kind of just like, Oh, it's just part of the job. So all that stuff happened, you know, and, and really, and really, I don't really even think I recall the mental health stuff, even, even in the first times, it was just, I picture it like a glass, you know, like the suicide things, just a couple drops, like my losing my buddy in a vehicle accident after fire season that I just bonded this, made this amazing relationship with, um, you know, a few more drops, you know, then you have you know, other friends that pass away or they get hit by a tree or like there's a burnover, and, and really it doesn't even have to be someone close to you. It could be something like the, the Granite mountain folks, you know, like they were a hotshot crew and I was on a hotshot crew and you see kind of your mortality through the loss of other people, you know, and like, even though you didn't know any of them, you're like, dude, this, that could happen to me. And so the glass just starts to keep filling up. And then I, I don't think I really understood the mental toll that was taking on me until probably 2016, 2017, 2018 is when I really was like, fuck. From a personal standpoint, I was struggling, and uh, it took some it took some kind of interesting uh, took a lot of patience to try and start to figure out what that was.
1: Yeah, well, I want to explore that because I mean, you you. You have a very interesting journey through that. But prior to that, just so we can set it up, I, I talk a lot about um, all the different elements. We touched on childhood trauma. You know, you and I were both very lucky that we had a, a pretty non-traumatic childhood overall. Um, yeah, you know, there's environmental stress, which I will get to in a little bit, whether it's, you know, understaffing, whether it's, you know, uh, an organization that's you know, micromanaging all these things. But another area is sleep deprivation. And when I think about, you know, overwork, um, you know, an understaffed wildland organization definitely seems to be at the top of that pyramid too. So when yeah, you're- Yeah, I got a lot to
2: say on that. Yeah, please. So <laughs> so tell us,
1: you know, tell us about yeah. the the sleep habits, the the
2: ability to get rest in in the crews that you work yeah. for. Yes. I'm glad you popped this open. I don't know if I shared this with you. I don't know. Maybe this is just a coincidence, but- Um, yeah. So sleep, sleep is a huge, so I am just, so there's full transparency. I'm a human performance nerd through and through. Like I love optimizing myself mostly and coaching people. Like I coach people in the private sector because I love it all from mental health to physical fitness to nutrition. And I hold a bunch of certs and all this shit, but I just enjoy doing it. Um, and I also do it within the program. And so our sleep is fucked. Like we, It is it is horrible. And in two thousand eighteen our agency um basically said came to the hotshot community. Um and and the 2018 was crazy. That was the campfire, the car fire, uh lots of just crazy fires in, in California. And it was the worst fire uh year to that to date before this last one. Um so it was a gnarly year and uh And so, so the region five, which is California, um, basically came to the hot shots and said, Hey, like all the superintendents in in region five said, Hey, like we need to figure out what fatigue looks like and how to manage fatigue. And they coined this fatigue management kind of thing as agencies do. And so they asked the hot shots to soups to like, basically look at how we could help or, or define what fatigue management looks like and better improve prove this stuff and so I happened I was a captain at the time and I, I was a part of this conversation and because of my uh, passion around human performance I weaseled my way into this group and uh, talked about how we need to look at sleep and mainly because I was wearing a little device on my finger called an aura ring for like the previous three years tracking my sleep religiously and trying to figure out what it was all about because I was just, I just felt like crap all the time um, on assignment because our, our tours, 14, 14 days on two weeks on assignment. And then you get two days off and then you do 14 days and then you get two days off. And then you get 14 days and you, you rinse and repeat that for six months. And on fire assignments, you're, you're held to a 16 hour shift, but on a hotshot crew, you're very rarely doing just 16 hours. You're doing, many, many more hours. You're sleeping in the dirt, you're in the smoke. And so you're, you're just in an environment that's just shit. So I wrote this paper and I sent it off to the regional leadership team to be looked at. And it was like, a it was a brief, brief explanation on, on what sleep is, uh, the negative aspects of not getting sleep, you know, from hormones to, risk of cancer, um, and really just increased, uh, raise in all cause mortality when you start seeing, um, reduction in sleep under seven hours or so. And obviously as you progress further down uh, in time, it, it elevates significantly. And, and then I incorporated the data that I had pulled using my, my aura ring as like, Hey, here's what my sleep looked like for literally six months on fire season and the amount of sleep depth I was getting. And so, you know, I was averaging somewhere between five and six hours on assignments. And as it progressed further and further and further into the season, just the less sleep I was getting and, um, the amount of inflammation you get from that kind of experience is pretty shitty. And how does that translate onto the fire line as far as a decision maker and leading your men and physical fitness standpoint and all that kind of stuff. So, um, so anyways, uh, what's really awesome, though, is they, they really that my region was extremely ecstatic about that. So we were able to purchase some biofeedback tools through a company called Whoop. We were able to put these uh, sleep tracker type devices on three different hotshot crews in California from superintendent, captain, squad leader and lead firefighter. So every level of the crew position wise to look at what sleep looked like amongst these people and uh was able to gather that data give a presentation and uh to the hot shots in region five mm-hmm. and then again at a national meeting in 2019 and the forest service loved it and they uh went all in and, and bought a shit ton for three years to put on as many people as possible and the whole uh idea behind this is to not change policy necessarily it's it's been anchored in the entire time um to identify personal sleeping habits amongst the individual so that they can change and adjust uh their habits in real time and it's about in uh improving the individual and it humbles me every single day that i have a conversation with somebody that has told me about the positive experiences they've gotten from wearing such a device like that Beautiful. Well, that
1: is that is half the conversation. <laughs> and the reason awesome. I, I say <laughs> the reason I say that is because this happens a lot in the municipal side too. So um, this is going to sound like nothing compared to you know the Wildland schedule, but this is you know obviously twelve years. Um, sorry, twelve months a year. The the municipal, a lot of them federal, I think got seventy two hour work weeks. A lot of them are fifty six. And when I have conversations about sleep deprivation, the answer from a lot of the the brass is, well, you know, when they're off, they need to go to bed earlier and this and that and sleep hygiene. And I agree 100%. The other side of the argument is that if the person that's bagging your groceries or preparing your taxes or cutting the meat in the butcher shop is working 40 hours a week, why are the men and women that are saving lives working 50, 60, 70 hours a week? So, what I've seen sometimes in my one of my previous departments, they did a whole sleep study and then they're like, yeah, yeah you're sleep deprived. <laughs> and that was it. Yeah, 100%. So, so yeah. my, you know, and I know this is a, a, a case with, with your agencies too. The other thing that needs to happen then is we are killing our men and women through sleep deprivation and through understaffing. We need to add more manpower.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think you're, I think you're right. I mean, Man, it's It's hard to talk about this subject because there's a lot of things behind the scenes that are going down. But here's the reality. like We know, even before putting these little devices on our wrist, that we were getting shit sleep. And we were sleep-deprived. You can go to any person and ask them, are you getting enough sleep? And they would say, hell no. But what this device did was it took us from a place of knowing to understanding, um, what's going on. And now we have this data, even though it's not a sleep study, it's more of like this kind of cool experiment. But, um, yeah, man, I, the solution to this is, I don't know, like for, for you guys, it probably is like a staffing thing. I could imagine like getting, you need more people to kind of fill the void so that people can get better rest. And I agree. Like we should be taking way better care of our, our emergency workers and first responders and stuff to be able to give them the, the best possible outcome from a physical standpoint, mental health, all this shit so that they can be successful because you and I have seen it, man. I choose these folks up. Uh, Like when they go home, they don't I mean it's it's all fine and danny to be like hey when you go home like you're gonna get rest but what if they have kids you know like what if they have I mean a lot of my my brother josh has two young kids like you know how hard it is for him to get sleep it's like balancing like okay I could go to sleep or I could spend time with my young boys so like there's there's a lot of different variables but for us the sleep problem is is it's a little different it's not necessarily we need more people I think it it's, it's a, uh, we need to, we need to start thinking about a different way of doing, doing business. Um, because, um, the time it's, I don't know, it's, it's hard. There's a lot, there's so many variabilities, right? There's like, uh, sleep is a big piece of the pie, but we have to be very aware of how we make decisions because the wildland firefighter, at least in my my job working for the feds we don't make a ton of money honestly it's all overtime based and until we switch until we change things around that i think um, it's going to be really hard to be able to provide good adequate rest for our folks because we rely so much on overtime to actually make a living
1: so well with the sleep the sleep thing for me is i think one of the elephants in the room when it comes to mental health and that's why you know i think for the municipal department if we have better staffing we could separate the shifts more so like a lot of the northeast you know they do 24 on 72 off which gives them actual at least a a full full day to recover in between um, you know so with you like you said it might be the way that you fight fire it might be the fact that you're paid well enough so that then there's not overtime positions there's actually other staff positions um, but the mental health impact of sleep deprivation is huge, whether it's long term with, you know, depression, anxiety, suicide ideation, or even short term with decision making. So I think I guarantee you, if we looked at some of the line of duty deaths in the municipal side, in the wildland side, some of those decisions could probably be attributed to sleep deprivation as well. So Absolutely. with, with your own journey, um, you know, now by this point, you've got, you know, what 16, 17 years of working these, these wildland cycles. So tell me, you know, kind of where, where you saw the cracks in your own mental wellness.
2: Well, I think you just talked about some of it was the sleep stuff, right? Like, <clears throat> I mean, uh, ex- you're exactly right. Sleep definitely has like a, such a big impact. Well, really on everything, <laughs> it kind of starts, it kind of starts there in, in, in a lot of ways. Um, as far as like how you, how you crave foods, how you perform physically and just the way you are, how irritable you potentially could be. So, um, so addressing sleep for me was kind of the first step into identifying like, okay, this, this is a part of the problem. Like this is part of maybe what I'm doing, uh, uh, or some of the things I'm thinking from a mental standpoint, and I've kind of been pretty good at like being uh, an observer, at least I like to think think I, I am, you know, of being able to like kind of see some of my faults and kind of confront them in a way. And and so sleep always was the the big one for me as far as like the first thing to sort of check the box to like, okay, I got that dialed in, like now what? Now what's the next step? I'm still feeling these feeling this shit.
1: So, if just so we don't jump ahead, so so kind of walk me through when you know where that low point was for you and what the kind of thoughts that were going through your
2: mind. Okay, yeah. So the first low point that I felt in my career was after 2018. Um, we were on the car fire up on a hill, and hotshot crews are extremely relied upon to. Um, not only provide backbreaking work or whatever, but also manage very difficult situations for uh, other people managing the fire, like divisions and things like this. And we are professional problem solvers. We come in when people are having a hell of a time solving a problem and we can be a force multiplier and and really figure out the problem in a safe way and, and complete the mission And in 2018, because of the amount of fires we were in, man, we were just launched into all of these different challenges where the primary objective was not necessarily fighting the fire, but making sure people didn't get killed by fire. And it became extremely, um, hard to do and, uh, and we had some pretty challenging experiences honestly where the fire was doing some crazy shit and blew up and we were safe like we didn't have any injuries or anything that year but you know some people passed away that season and not it wasn't a direct influence or or whatever from the decisions we made but you're a part of that environment and uh I remember having these really sobering feelings of like, man, I just don't know if this is what I should be doing anymore. Like if this is what my life is going to be, it's just like really stressed out about trying to keep people from getting killed all the time and uh, trying to get people out of situations. And so I started pursuing, well, the problem was, is as soon as that thought entered my mind, I was challenged with something I think a lot of people deal with. And this is this idea of identity and, uh, in the agency, I think we, in any fire public servant type of job, we tend to identify really hard with the position that we, that we fill and we'll even tell people like, Hey, my name's Ben, I'm a firefighter or I'm a hotshot. You know what I mean? And, and that becomes who you are. And when you start having feelings that challenge, that macho aspect of what you, you were identifying with. And all of a sudden you have these thoughts of uh, sadness or compassion or whatever. It just, it, it, it doesn't line up with the way you kind of identified yourself with for so many years. And it becomes extremely emotionally challenging if you haven't made the realization that I was able to finally come to, which was I'm more than a firefighter. (laughs) And so, uh, yeah, 2018 was kind of the first aspect of me starting to find those challenges w- within myself, and I had a really hard time relating with people at work. Um, I I was thought I had this new path I was going to follow, and and I was like, man, these guys are just macho and like they chest bumping and hardcore dudes, and you know, I was like, man, I just don't feel like I want to be that anymore. Um, and it wasn't until I had a conversation with a really close friend of mine, uh, where he told me, he's like, Hey dude, like, you know, first off you are more than what you say you are, but you also can be the person you want to be has a place in that environment. In fact, people, that's what people want. They want this authentic authenticity to be there. So, yeah, well, I did keep. No, no. Was, ahead, sorry. I,
1: I was going to say the identity thing is huge. And I, I see it in, um, especially when people transition out, whether it's through injury, whether it's through retirement, whether it's, you know, being fired, oh, yeah. you know, whatever yeah. it is, um, where if all you've seen yourself is as a police officer, a Marine, you know, whatever, and we see them, we see those vets that, you know, at 67 years old, they're adorned head to toe with firefighter, military, whatever it is, to let everyone know, hey, by the way, I'm this thing. And there's nothing wrong with being proud of the profession that you've done. But at the same time, if you're just clinging to that identity, just like you said, that is a very, very toxic um, you know, philosophy. So having yeah. other tribes, whether that tribe's your family, whether it's a CrossFit group, whether it's, you know, the triathlon, you know, your football team, whatever it is, that starts kind of letting you realize yeah you you are a human being with many layers and one of the layers is a hotshot, but that doesn't mean that's all of you
2: yeah i think yeah man for sure and i think uh obviously i'm super proud to be this and and when i was able to reflect on this stuff i obviously was like okay cool like i can keep doing this job And, and really it was because i was able to man we we live our we do these careers and things like this and it 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 the reason why we initially started to do these things can sometimes get lost. And, and really what happened to me was, in some regard, was A, yes, I was identifying with, with something that could change. And I'll expand on that in just a minute. But B, I had completely lost the reason why I was doing this job you know, you get lost in like, you have a family, you have this, you, you become a, you become, you, you start the job as a young man with no, with no responsibilities. Like I ain't married. I don't have kids. I I have a truck payment maybe. And, and that's it. And a dresser full of clothes that is mobile in the back of my truck. Like I don't have any ties. And then you start to have, uh, you know, you get a wife, you have a kid and you have these things and you become a provider. All of a sudden, and all of a sudden, your why kind of changes a little bit. And for me, and in, in, in 2018, it, after having those conversations with my friends, I realized, "Fuck, why did I? Why did I even do this job to begin with?" And it was going back to this this main purpose that actually breathed this life back into me. And I was like, "Fuck, I did this because I enjoy it," because the the, the purpose it gives me because I, I can help people because it constantly puts me in uncomfortable positions that give me opportunity to, to like learn something about myself. So I can actually be the best version that I possibly can be and, uh, and project this person that I want to be. And, and so that actually has, is something I, I teach to people now is like, Hey, like I, I just taught at the academy this last uh, three days and I taught a whole section on the why and like why it's important to have a strong why and, and the re- and, and coming to an intrinsic reason uh, for the reasons why you do stuff, because uh, that purpose will be something you can tap into later when shit gets hard. And, um, and then on the other side of that, like I talked about identifying and, and something that I just keep reminding myself all the time. And, and what I, Tell some of the folks that work for me too is everything in life can change everything just about everything. So saying or identifying, saying, saying you are something is one thing. If you understand that um, everything can change at an instant, your name, the place you live, uh, you know, the, your job, your career, whatever, all those things can change. And so saying um, I'm a firefighter and identifying super hard with that is not accurate. And what I try and tell people and draw attention to is like you as a person are so much more than your job. You're so much more than your name. You're so much more than the place you live. You are this beautifully undescribable thing like nobody can actually say exactly what you are we're this complex chemical chain reaction of sucking in air and breathing out co2 and like it's the exchange of different chemicals and electrical firing and all this kind of crazy thing and like and ultimately like you can't really say what that is human is as close as we can get these words words are concepts and they're great for describing briefly what we're looking at to somebody else potentially, but they aren't, but they're, I think they're they don't accurately depict, um, exactly how fucking awesome people are and how beautiful this life is. And that when I say don't identify, it's to remind myself that what we truly are is this incredibly beautiful, special thing and that actually motivates me to be a better person. Yeah, I love
1: that, and I think the why is is absolutely um, the core of you know that's that's what allows some seals to get through buds without ringing the bells, what allows some fire recruits to go through the mazes and climb the aerial, and all these things that also has people tapping out. You know, that's that burning desire, and I think what I've seen as a guy about we're roughly the same age is. You enter a service profession, whether it's police, fire, you know, the military, whatever it is, um, because you want to make a difference. And that's a soft part of the human psyche. It's the, the yang. If we're looking at the Chinese symbol, um, but in order to do that, the vehicle that you've chosen, you're not going to protest and wear sandals and, you know, sit outside the White House with a sign. You're going to pick up tools and, and basically kick shit in and go pull people out of burning houses or, you know, cut line on a, on a California hillside. So that's very much the hard side. The problem is the complete firefighter, police officer, soldier is the yin and the yang together. But what I find, especially, especially in, in the men, is that it's almost like we start to negate the soft side and then we become this black circle, which is just hard, hard, hard. Or well, I'm Schwarzenegger, right? I'm Robocop. No, you're fucking not. <laughs> you're not. Yeah. You just yeah. do a thing that when we're in the heat of battle, you have to rely on that part. That's the part of you that allows you to run towards gunfire or a burning car when everyone else is running away. However, yeah. the burning desire is actually the soft part. So, when you start negating that, firstly, you lose your why, you forget why you're you know showing up. Now, you're not... Uh, self motivated to exercise to 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 sleep well at home to eat well to you know work on your craft but the other thing that i see is so detrimental when it comes to mental health is now like you said oh i'm a firefighter i'm hard i don't need to you know oh yeah i just saw those those kids die it doesn't bother me uh yes yes it fucking does because you started this profession to help people and you just had a horrendous thing where you saw people die or in terrible pain, it should resonate with you. So uh, this, as we get to that kind of avatar of the firefighter and identify with that rather than the human being wearing a uniform, it's an incredibly dangerous place for the human mind to go.
2: Yeah, yeah, man. I think, uh, man, some of the things that you were talking about, I, I agree with, and I think uh, and it brought up some stuff like, you know, <clears throat> I think we do in a lot of ways um, start this profession to potentially help people. You know that might be a why. Um, I think my why evolved a little bit, and and uh, because the job created a f- amount of freedom. But my why now has has changed a little bit or evolved a little bit more, and and really my life is about is about learning how to be a better person. And if we can't show ourselves the compassion, um, that we need in the moments that we need it and the tough love sometimes and, and take care of those essential needs that we all have around just health, sleep, nutrition, all this shit, then we would be, we're going to be shitty people, uh, especially when we're trying to help people in in the professions that we've chose. If we, if we have to, we have to be real with ourselves and that this calloused, um. Well, it's really just like I, I. And I don't know. Maybe you could tell me too. Like I feel like uh, these thoughts of like this identity that we come into, like it's it's a uh, it's a false sense of identity. But it's also like I think there's a lot of ego that's involved with that, and that's why it sticks around. Um. In in some way, uh, as far as like uh you know this hard shell of a man. You know you see it in the men like you were saying a lot, but this hard shell of a man like trying to be this macho type of thing i I think uh i think a lot of people have this this walking around this ego that kind of keeps those walls intact
1: yeah well i mean i think we all have a history we all have a human journey up to the point we put the badge on and we all have shortcomings you know i know i mean i'm i you know i actually suffer heavily from um oh god i always forget the phrase um imposter syndrome so even when I've achieved things, I'm like, yeah, but it's not as good as so-and-so, you know what I mean? <laughs> and then I'll do it like, yeah, wow, you sure. do this, this, and this. I'm like, yeah, but, you know, and so, and I think that's that's the thing is when you put, when you stand up, the kind of, you know, imagine a cardboard cutout in the old video shops of, of a firefighter and you stand behind it. Well, everyone sees the firefighter, so you don't have to show them all the real shit. So I think that's a part of it too, and I think that that... What I find is very positive, and I just had to deal with this myself the last couple of years, is when you refine that why and you realize that you're ultimately trying to be a good person and trying to leave this world better than than you found it, then it doesn't matter if you're wearing a uniform or God forbid you got hurt and now you're sitting behind a desk or you transitioned out, you retired. If your journey is still to be a good person, you're coaching the community, you started a nonprofit, you're, you know, doing something that makes firefighters safer now, whatever it is, you're still on that same path. It's just the ego, like you said, the, the magic trousers, we put them on, and all of a sudden we're attractive to the women. Um, you know, that, <laughs> that, that's a facade. It really is. So, you know, <laughs> yeah, the yeah. good person that you are. One of the chapters was you threw on a uniform and you did some dangerous shit and you saved some lives. But that doesn't define you. And you don't – you're no less a firefighter the day you put that uniform down and you go and do something else good in the world.
2: Yeah, man. I, I think that's legit also. And like, uh, you know, it's about following the passion too. Like if you have a really strong why these things like starting a nonprofit and these, uh, you know, being a fireman and saving people, kicking the door and doing whatever, right? that that's beneficial for the world. Um the reason why you're doing that ultimately is just to be the, the best version of yourself possible and I say this all the time is like it's a positive byproduct that that helps people. The more times you can tap into this this rad person that you really are and uh and chase the passions um that you feel inclined to do, that that m- motivate you to be a better person. That's that's like I think that's where people you see like the best work out of people is because they're ultimately their main goal, whether they realize it or not um, is just to be the better, best version of themselves. And that authenticity is like moths to a light and uh, people get stuff from that. And that's what kind of progresses and uh, other people kind of bleeds that positive energy into the world.
1: Absolutely. Well, you touched on, on 2018 being your, your kind of, decline at that point so where was the lowest point you found yourself
2: yeah the lowest point I found myself uh, and you're talking outside of that two thousand eighteen year
1: oh yeah just I mean in, in that yeah, entire yeah, journey
2: yeah for sure um, well after two thousand eighteen this I, I rode this energy for a while right I refigured out my why I tapped back into it and I was like hell yeah I'm motivated I'm gonna go get my get the job I put uh, my priority on for since I started in this agency and I'm going to be a hotshot superintendent. Like that's what I want. Um, so last year I got that job. I got my dream job, um, in April and it was in the midst of COVID kicking off fire seasons, getting ready to hammer, And we entered the the most epic fire season that I have ever been a part of that anybody's ever been a part of or witnessed. And, um, it was exciting. And I never had any, uh, people would come up to me and tell me like, Oh man, what a year to get the soup job. And I never really bought into that. You know, I'd be like, yeah, but you know, this is my job. Like I don't, the fire season isn't something that I can control, that that and dictate like what it, how intense it's going to be. So why should I give a shit about it? I'm you know I'm I'm out here doing my job, my responsibilities, make sure my guys are safe and we can complete the mission. And um, I never had any negative thoughts the entire season. I was actually it was a fantastic season uh, as far as like we did some hero shit as people like to call it, and we did some. Had some great shifts, had a ton of laughs, and everybody came away safe. But then November hit, and uh, this is when we, around the time we lay our folks off uh, our season. So half of our crew is a seasonal staff. And so we lay off half the crew, and then, you know, it's still, we're still dealing with COVID as a thing. And then they just shoved all of the permanents onto a telework schedule. So we have we have about nine permanent employees that work year round, and uh, we got shoved on a telework schedule. And then it's you know it's and to no fault of anybody you know like it's it's really hard for everybody to see everyone's perspective all the fucking time. But you know you get the bosses and you get the other programs that you're working for. You know the fire season's over, but then they keep they immediately start asking you um, to get involved in all this other shit. And I was like, man, I just I, uh, just stopped fire season. Like I need a deep breath. Like we just, I haven't seen my family. I haven't seen my kids and it's, and it's, uh, your perspective on life becomes really, it, it's really hard to see where you're going because it, it feels like you're putting out spot fires basically, um, from uh, using an analogy from the fire, wildland fire world. And so you're it, basically what you're, you're, you just, your lack of perspective and um, all of a sudden things became very real to me. I'm like, man, I just got my dream job and my life is now going to be comprised of six months of being away from my family, watching my kids grow or not getting an opportunity to watch my kids grow. And, uh, and, and then fire season's over. And then I just get bombarded by other people's bullshit and this is just gonna be my life for the next 11 to 12 years this repetitive cycle like just living on this hamster wheel and it was that thought that all of a sudden I started to have thoughts of suicide and I can honestly say that I've never ever ever had thoughts of suicide until that point in fact I was the person that would hear about someone having these thoughts and my initial reaction would always be like, well, that's stupid. That's a selfish thought. And don't they know that there's so much to live for? And then here I am having these thoughts myself and telling myself those things. And those things are completely, utterly unhelpful. They do not help whatsoever. Um, And, and so I'm, I find myself in this position of like, well, I can just step off the hamster wheel. And, uh, I never really got to a point where I was ready to do the deed. Um, I do remember sitting in my bedroom at one point and, you know, I have a pistol locked up in a gun safe and I got in the room and I sat on my bed and I just had this sinking feeling. I was like, whew, man, that's two steps away and I can just do this right now. And that feeling was incredibly uncomfortable. And, uh, man, I can feel how that feels right now. Like it's, it was a powerful experience. And, but I, I must say like, you know, I, because of that, I, I, I'm fortunate because I'm where I'm at now and I didn't do it. And I learned a shit ton from that. Just having those feelings and those, and, and being able to, and I think because I had a, a strong childhood, like we talked about earlier, and because I've been kind of a human performance nerd, uh, you know, mentally and physically that I had acquired a bunch of tools in my life that I was able to put to work. And, um, that ultimately, uh, the utilization of those tools is what got me through it.
1: Well, firstly, thank you for, for sharing that. Cause every single man and woman that comes on here and shares their story illustrates everyone listening that they're not alone. This happens over and over and over again. One thing I want to ask you, cause you, you actually mentioned that, you know, you have this, the, this old school mentality of, oh, you know, again, so-and-so killed themselves. Well, how selfish now their kids and wife are left behind What what I've actually found as I got to interview people that got very, very close, some pulled the trigger, it didn't go off, some jumped off a bridge and survived. I mean, just crazy, you know, absolutely there is there is an absolute common denominator bearing in mind that the the brain by this point is broken, you know, whether it's through sleep deprivation, trauma, all these compounding things. It's at a point where it's not functioning the way it's supposed to. They all reported... A feeling of being a burden to their family so in their mind at that moment the thought was to to alleviate the burden it was actually a, a, an act of selflessness so it's not doesn't mean it was right it was completely dis, you know, distorted in their brain but at that moment they thought they were being selfless was that in the equation of, of when you were thinking sitting in your bedroom
2: yeah for sure man like <laughs> Absolutely. Like, I'm having these realizations of like, fuck, man, I'm on this hamster wheel. Like, how is this for my family to experience? Like, my wife has to deal with this shit now, too. My kids don't get a dad. Like, I come home after a two week roll and like, I'm irritable as shit. I I feel like things should be a certain way and like, I'm just a a menace. And I'm just like, so I'm just going to do these, do this, live this life to my, like, my, to my wife and kid and this way for the next fucking 12 years or whatever it is. And, and, uh, for sure. Like I, I was like, well, I could just, you know, do this thing right now. And then, you know, my wife gets like a, some insurance money, could pay the house off like live a better life. Maybe, maybe find a guy who's not a douchebag. Like, you know, like some of these thoughts for sure that, that, I think that idea was there for sure. You know,
1: yeah. Well, it's an important thing to tell. And thank you again for sharing that because the, as, yeah, long no as, as long as we have that judgmental philosophy, then we never understood, understand what these men and women are going through, you know, right at these last moments. So understanding and identifying, if you're having those thoughts yourself listening, that that's not normal and you're wrong. You're not a burden. And obviously the reality is you do leave that that trauma with the family is left behind. My wife actually lost her boyfriend before me and I saw it firsthand, that trauma left behind. But we also have to, you know, be compassionate and understand that the men and women that are finding themselves in that place are, you know, that their wiring is off. And I don't mean that in a patronizing way. I mean, in a physiological way, like they are literally not thinking the way that the average person normally thinks.
2: Totally, man. And really, I mean, we've mentioned the anchor point a few times. And the main reason why I wanted to go on that particular podcast at that moment is because this, you know, I... I did that podcast maybe two months or maybe even a month or whatever after having those feelings and being able to work through it and be really patient with myself. And then I remember listening to some other podcasts about mental health within my agency. And it's, and then there was a lot of conversation of a younger generation people basically saying like, Oh, well, the agency doesn't have my back. No one's calling me. I'm having these feelings, but no one's recognizing that. And, um, it's not to say that we don't need better things within our agencies to help support people i think we should always be striving for something more and and having those resources for folks and i'm deeply involved with a lot of those things for sure but ultimately what i wanted to do when i came on there was to tell people like hey you're not fucking alone like you're not alone we need to remove the stigma like Um, it became, it's become aware to me that like talking to more and more people that these are not uncommon things that happen. Like people have these thoughts regularly, but, uh, we recognize it as such a negative thing or this thing that we need to like, or we're a burden or whatever, instead of just being still and going like, okay. I'm having these thoughts, where are they coming from and how can, uh, what, what do I need to do to like, try and look deeper as to what, what's going on here. And ultimately that's what I did because of the tools I've had and the experience I've had, uh, you know, diving deep into who I am. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's, I want people to know for sure, since we're talking about this, like you're not alone. There's a lot of people that experience this stuff. Um, and you, you do, you're not a burden at, at all. You have the ability to get past this. You really do. You just have to be super brave and have a ton of courage, and and look at look at what look at your life and what's going on.
1: Yeah, and I think that a huge thing for people to understand is that there are reasons for it, reasons that you can address. So, for as I mentioned, yeah, you know, there's childhood trauma. That's a huge element in a lot of the people that I've had on here. There's organizational stress. There's relationship issues. There's sleep deprivation. There's you know obesity i mean all these things that factor in that create this perfect storm so understanding that a you're not crazy you're not weak you're not being a pussy you're not being a coward you're not being any of these things if i I had a near career ending back injury that was a compounding effect of everything that had happened up to that point sleep deprivation again (laughs) being huge but it would be the same as me taking myself out because I didn't want to be a a burden versus working through it, which sucked, which really fucking hurt, which was frustrating, which was two steps forward, one step back. But I ended up returning to the fire service stronger than I ever was before. So people forgiving themselves and understanding that there are compounding factors that got you here. And those same factors can be unstacked and placed back where they came from to to actually not even put you back to where you were, but make you even more resilient than you used to be. It's just going to take
2: work. Oh, for sure. I think the key word you said there is forgiveness. Like <laughs> we need it for everything in our lives. Like you talked about like uh, childhood trauma and stuff like this, right? Like in some of the stuff that I do in coaching, like we talk about these as stories, like stories unwillingly given to you and how those impacted you, you know, between the ages of, birth and seven years old, where you basically become the person you are, because that's when you have the most neuroplasticity. And, uh, these stories you can carry, you carry all the way through childhood. And, um, and that's part of identifying too. You identify with these things and then, uh, you get to a point where you're just super unhappy. And, um, when you can look at those things and, and challenge, uh, what you've believed your whole life and come to a place of forgiveness. Um, and forgive everything for that has happened in the positions that you are that's when you start to like you said you unstack and restack and then you can show an immense amount of gratitude for those things that have happened in your life because at the end of the day that they've made you who you are absolutely
1: well so before we kind of transition because i want to talk about overall you know wildland fires and and the fact that they're getting bigger and and that kind of thing but so tell me about you personally you you had that darkest moment what were some of the tools that you identified that you then saw begin to work
2: right well the, the first tool that i utilized was my beautiful wife <laughs> calling your wife and... a tool
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: oh shit she's gonna hear this right no, <laughs> i'm just kidding uh yeah I mean, she is a tool, I guess, but in the, in a good sense, (laughs) but, uh, so I, I just went to her right away and was just like, Hey, I'm having this, this shit's happening to me and how I need, I need time to think, you know, I like create, create some space. And that's one of the things that I've learned through like meditation or mindfulness or whatever kind of thing you want to call it. But for me, it was just, I need time to think, I need time to give myself some space and really process what's going on. And so she's like, Okay uh, I'll, I'll take care of this. And so she, we got the girls over to my mom's house or some friend's house. And, and I gave myself space to think. And ultimately what happened was I just was really extremely patient with myself and I meditated or did mindfulness work for damn near, um, two straight days and, uh, did a ton of journaling and wrote all my thoughts down. And I came to a place where man all the it, it, i had i re i needed to i was not taking care of my basic needs for me i was living a life that was full of desire and wants and i was asking a ton of questions and searching for answers that didn't exist and 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 those answers and those questions i was asking were based around this desire for whatever to fill a void or fulfill some sort of happiness or joy in my life, and um, but I knew those material things couldn't do it. So I had to. I ultimately ultimately came up with a list of things that I need personally to be a successful human being, um, so that I could set better intentions in my life, uh, and and just be a, a a better human. And I can talk about those if you want. Oh please. Um, Yeah. So like my basic needs, um, and these are, these are personal to me and I think they could be a little different for some folks and, and I'm not attached to these ideas either. I I am very willing to let go of these and let them evolve on their own and turn into other things or be simplified or, or whatever. But my first, my first need for me to be successful is having a, a knowledge of good nutrition. Like what am I putting in my face? you know, like, is it, is it a bunch of junk food? Um, then I probably it's, how is that going to affect me? So it's about nutrition or it's about feeding the body, the right, uh, nutrition through food so that I can, because our body is just a meat sack of chemical chain reactions. Right. And so like we have to understand basic human, uh, uh, physiology and we can't deny that. So we need to be providing ourselves the, the, the proper nutrition. So that's the first one. And um, the second one is proper movement or a knowledge of movement. And the reason why I say this is because while well, I'm saying the knowledge of is because I really think a lot of the things that happen within our society right now is just a lack of education. And so I have spent a lot of time educating myself on all these, on all these basic needs um so that i could be successful so so the next one's proper movement and i sort of incorporate sleep into that as well and so uh it's for me it's setting up a a routine where i can be moving every day without compromise and i'm providing that need because if i'm eating good i'm moving good i'm sleeping good i am starting my day off with the best foot forward and all the other things after this fall into place pretty easily or put me in a position where I can actually look at them um, with the best positive outlook. So, so it's uh, it's nutrition, it's movement and sleep, like I said, is incorporated into that. And then my next uh, basic need or understanding is the ability to observe. And I talk about this as I want to be able to observe myself. Like I would be a person sitting on a park bench, observing people playing in a park i'm I'm detaching myself from what is going on, and I'm observing myself as I react to the external world and what that looks like. And it's just a, it's super simple. You just watch yourself react to stuff and don't attach yourself to the feelings that that you're feeling or or the emotions or whatever. You just see them for what they are. You understand that they come up, and then you just let them pass, just like someone walking by you. So that's the that's the third one. The next one is uh, this idea of I identify, like don't identify. And it's not to say that we don't identify. We are always going to identify with something, and emotions is is one of the bigger ones, right? Like, oh, I'm fucking angry or, oh, I'm pissed off or oh, I'm so happy right now. like but all those things change so, so quickly. Um, you know, I used to tell people I was my default emotion was anger, and like I was just a naturally angry person that's not true. It's an emotion. It can be changed and it can be replaced with another emotion. And and like I said, I, I identify not identifying is just me understanding and asking myself this, this kind of important question where it's like what we always try and ask ourselves, like, what, what am I, you know, what am I, what am I? And it's really me defining it in a different way and asking a different question, which is what am I not? And I think, by asking myself that question, it gets me closer to what I actually am. So that's, that's that one. The next one is acceptance. This is something I kind of struggle with a little bit from time to time, because naturally in our careers, we are trying to control things, right? Like the wildland firefighter is trying to control the only natural disaster, in my opinion, uh, that we as humans try to control, which is wildland fire, which is insane to think about. So, and, and because of that, we're trying to control the environment. We're trying to get people to fall in line to do what we need them to do and all this stuff. And so our, our jobs is about kind of this idea of control. And at the end of the day, um, I need to remind myself all the time, like there's a lot of things outside of life that we cannot control. We can't control most of the external world. And I describe this to people as picture yourself driving down the freeway and someone slams into the back of you in the car. The world is a complex, unique world with so many different things happening and none of that shit you can control. Most of it. And, uh, it's it just is what it is. And I talked about it as like, uh, like I didn't, I used to hate it when people would say that, um, Oh, it happened for a reason, right? Because it was like this this idea that like oh some shitty thing happened to them or something they did happened and there was a, a an effect from that that they weren't that wasn't intended and then and it was just a cop out because they could say like, oh, it was it happened for a reason. And I used to hate that. I'm like, no man, I create my own destiny, but years ago I came to the conclusion that, well, I think that's true to some regard in some regard. Like there's, like I said, the world's complex, things are happening and you have to accept that you can't control that, all that stuff. And you also can't control people. Like, uh, you know, I'm a dad, I have kids and you're constantly yelling at your kids to pick up this and do that and do your homework and brush your hair and do all this crap. Right. And you forget to understand like, man, I just need to accept them for who they are sometimes and just let them be them. Instead of trying to make them do what I want them to do all the time. And so it's also about accepting people for who they are. So that's acceptance. Uh, the next piece after that is uh, you are a creation of your thoughts. And this is after that guy slams into you on the freeway. Um, you get to create your own destiny now. Like you are a creation of your thoughts. Uh, you have no control of the external world, but you do have control over how you think and perceive things, and how you react. And um, I think that's something I try and make myself aware of. Obviously, I, I run through this checklist every day, and uh, and I think it's a powerful thing. It's um, you know, ultimately, you are a creation of how you think, and how you think is how you're going to be projecting yourself into the world. And so the next one is, uh, you know, give space. Um, like I talked about, like I, I work on this one all, all a lot and because of, it, I had a, a fairly strong meditative practice already, like giving space is what was able to get me to some of these conclusions. And it's, it's really kind of just this all good mentality. It's, it's, it's also this idea of like, especially, I don't know if you have this this problem but I for sure have this problem um, and a lot of people I think that I work with have this problem is like we have this sense of duty that if there is a slow moment or a downtime we need to fill it with something because we feel guilty because we're not doing something Absolutely. and this was yeah and this was something that has troubled me for such a long time and man it's fucking okay not to do shit sometimes <laughs> Like, take a fucking day off who cares that's okay take a day off like, as long as you're taking care of your basic needs and you want to chill on the couch and want net, watch Netflix all day, that's okay if the intention's correct. It's, it's okay to shut the brain down and not be go, 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 go. And it, it takes a lot of – it took me a long time to come to that realization, but, um, you know, giving spaces to me is that – giving myself the space to just kind of take a deep breath and be like, you know what, it's all good. And so that's that. And then the next piece uh and this one kind of floats around a little bit is um well it's what we're doing now it's shared perspective. I think in today's world with technology technology's awesome, dude. It's so so awesome. It is an incredible thing. Humans are meant to innovate and I think a lot of this stuff that we've done technology wise is has made life awesome, but it all it all has also given us <laughs> uh it's also put us in a place where if we don't want to use our legs, we don't have to. And so we don't communicate like efficiently like we used to. And that's basically what shared perspective is. I th- just call it a fancy way of saying communication. But I think what we what we tend to do in this world is is we don't talk about our our perspectives very much. We're very opinion-based, but we don't talk about how we have lived our lives, the lessons we've learned. And we don't share that perspective because I think shared perspective is how we kind of, is a way we can grow collectively. And like, I I talked about this, I talk about this all the time, but like a lot of people have their eye right up on the cue ball, right? Like, and you're not going to see much of that cue ball um, except for whatever's right in front of that little eyeball there. But some of us are got our eye pulled a foot back maybe we have 30 feet back and we can see more of that cue ball but you're never going to see the entire cue ball you have to talk to somebody on the other side of that cue ball to gain the perspective of that cue ball and that convert that shared perspective is going to give us the ability to travel around and learn more about each other understand things about each other better and uh and, and just become better versions of ourselves. Like I'll say that a million times. So shared perspectives enough is the other thing. Am I communicating correctly? Am I sharing my perspective with people? Am I, am I talking about opinions or am I talking about uh, my personal truth? And then the last one is the, what I call the power move and it's uh, let it go. We have to understand all of us have to understand that we're all going to fucking die at some point. Um, and, uh, let it go is, is a reminder to me that I have to look at everything in my life. Like it could be gone in an instant, my wife, my kids, my job, my everything I have, it could literally be gone two minutes from now. And all that does is it gets me to a place of immense appreciation for everything that I have. And the experiences that I have in this in this fucking beautiful life. And all of those needs. If I take care of all of those needs first. I can set better intentions about the things that I want. Because I, I just want to pursue those things because they're enjoyable. It's not based on a desire to fill a void of happiness or joy or whatever. And it gets me closer to a spot where i can live in this present moment and recognize all the cool shit that's going around me and that's that's kind of the outcome of that's how i'm living my life right now and that that was an outcome of me having suicidal thoughts and i think if we're all patient enough with ourselves and willing to go to war with our minds and and confront those uncomfortable super dark places of our beings that a lot of us can come to the same conclusion
1: yeah well firstly thank you for for sharing that secondly that's an incredibly profound introspective seeing as that you're talking about november was not even four months ago (laughs) so you're down a hell of a journey but a couple of things that you hit on i think that were very pertinent to me one again other common denominators really floated to the surface is staying busy And it's an absolute warning sign, I think, for unaddressed trauma. Because if we, you know, what's the the enemy, what's the the polar opposite of, of being busy all the time? It's mindfulness. It's sitting, being silent. And when you're silent, when you're present, now it's holding a mirror up to what's really going on in your head. So a lot of our men and women that, you know, find themselves doing second jobs, taking all the overtime they can, you know, busy, busy, busy. We kind of got to take a step back and go, am I doing this purely because I'm saving up for that amazing present? I want to get my four-year-old or am I doing it because I don't want to address what's actually going on in my mind? Um, That's exactly
2: it, dude.
1: Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing um, is, like you said, how we react to a situation. There was a guy, have you ever heard of Wayne Dyer?
2: Mm, I don't recall now.
1: Yeah, a lot of people it's funny, a lot of people haven't, but he was kind of in that imagine like a white Deepak Chopra is the best way of describing him. <laughs> um, sadly he passed away from leukemia a few years ago before I started doing this, but just a, an incredibly intelligent, spiritual, kind, compassionate human being that that had some, you know, I hate using that word, but self te- self-help style um tapes and things that were out there. But one of the things, I forget the analogy, I'm probably going to butcher it a little bit, but he was like, imagine if you're an orange. No matter what the pressure is from the outside when you're squeezed, it's still orange juice that's going to come out. So what his thing was is that you basically, the state that you're in personally is going to to be how you respond to stress from the outside. So if you're constantly angry and pissed off, the barista taking too long with your latte is going to make you lose your <laughs> shit. But if you're in yeah, a calm right. place, like you said, the distracted teen driver that sideswipes you, you're going to be calm enough to go, look, I'm not happy about this. However, I get it. You're young. You're distracted. You need to learn from this, but you're not going to take their head off. So that's a very important point, too, is getting to that point of, of you know inner peace and, and that gratitude piece is huge. I personally think the enemy of depression and anxiety is gratitude. But we're in an environment where we're told we we don't have enough and we're not good enough.
2: Yeah, no, I mean, dude, for sure. I think, um, yeah, I mean, well, that's that's exactly it. Like, especially in this Western culture, I think too. You know, like, we're, there's there's we're every time you turn around, there's something telling you that, oh, wait, hey, you need this to be happy, right? That there's a there's a magazine, there's a famous person, there's someone selling you something on Instagram, There's constantly someone saying like, you need, you need to base your life on, on this as a, as a way to be successful or to, to feel joy because everybody else is doing it. And we, and we lose the sense of gratitude of the shit that we currently have is actually pretty goddamn cool. Like I'm walking around my house when this, when I made some of this realization, I'm connecting these dots up and I'm like, man, I got a house. Like, I live on two acres. It is beautifully sunny out here. My parents live right there. Like, I have two awesome kids. Like, it's, it's, I'm like, dude, I have everything I need. I'm so grateful for all of this shit and, uh, and extremely lucky to have it. And it could all be gone in an instant. And it's actually gotten me to a point now where I feel like, um, like the minimalistic type of lifestyle is very attractive to me where it's like stripping all the bullshit away and just understanding you really don't need that much to be super happy. And in fact, I could make a fairly decent argument that if as long as you have shelter food and uh, you can stay warm somewhat and you have a heartbeat, like essentially if you're doing that, you basically have everything you need to, to live and you can find everything else because happiness and joy comes from inside of you. It doesn't come from materialistic things.
1: Absolutely, and I think that's the thing is if if you have that mindset, and it's funny, I think that was really shown to me in my very early twenties. I backpacked around the world, so I literally had a backpack yeah, awesome. and a guitar. That was it, and I'm not even a good guitarist. I don't know why I bother taking it. But <laughs> regardless, it looked cool. <laughs> yeah, I'm um, not for sure. <laughs> no, but joking apart, you know, now when when you're scaled down to nothing you're i would say less likely to let your health go to shit too because you understand the value of your ability to provide for your family your ability to protect your family you know the ability to, to physically you know go and get food go and get water build shelter whatever it is so the more superfluous stuff we surround ourselves the further away we find ourselves from what truly matters which is living long enough to see our kids get older
2: yeah exactly i think you're right man i if you, if you can boil it down to the things that actually matter, like, uh, all of a sudden polishing your, your brand new truck doesn't become an actual need anymore. <laughs> like you take care of the things that are most important first. And that, and that that's really what my, my list all about. It's all about just, okay. In the morning time, I wake up, I eat a little bit of food. I go right into the gym. Um, and I, I get my workout. And as soon as my workout's done, I sit down and I meditate. And it's because I slept already, I ate some food, I gave myself the nutrition, and I got my movement in like right off the bat, I'm winning, like within the first three hours of the day. And now I go through the mental checklist, am I observing, identify, you know, accepting all these things. And once I do that, I can see where I'm stuck a little bit and be like, okay, cool, let's open that up a little bit more, maybe journal about it for a minute. And then I, man, the, the day is awesome after that you have the way you communicate the 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 things you find important throughout the day and and really it comes down to the intention setting like i'm not making any choices based on desire anymore at this point i'm making choices based on the fact that i want it because it i want to buy some ice cream because i just feel like having ice cream it's going to taste good it's a choice it's not i'm not filling a void and so anyways I could talk about just that stuff like pretty much for another three hours probably <laughs>
1: <laughs> no that's brilliant well I want to transition then for, so that we get sure, another good. topic as well if you've got time because
2: absolutely mm-hmm. I got all the time in the world man
1: beautiful I think this is uh, this is going to be a great conversation we got a little bit more to, to unwrap but um, another area and again I'm a, from the outside looking in the same way as when I discuss uh, you know law enforcement some of these other areas I'm not a wildland firefighter I've had a handful of wildland fires but um that being said, I had Jason Ramos on the show. I've had uh, uh, Brooke Carrasco, which I want to touch on, on her in a minute. I've had you know, several wildland firefighters, and especially Jason, when you know he's so analytical and so kind of science-minded, we find ourselves where we are now sometimes because that's just kind of how the metamorphosis of our particular profession has, has, has arrived at. You That's know, just where we are. But on occasion, you can take a step back and go, I know you've arrived here, but what if we went back and did things differently? Because it doesn't seem like this is the most intelligent way of doing said thing. So Jason talks about the fire shelters and them actually not being able to do what a lot of us think they're able to do. And his, uh, well, not criticism, his analysis was maybe, you know, that we shouldn't be fighting some of these fires that we should be much more aggressive on backburning so if you were mm-hmm. king for a day in the wildland fire service um, including mm. where you allow people to build houses how would we reverse engineer the wildland issue that we have at the moment so we're not losing cities like paradise so we're not losing you know hotshots like the Prescott 19
2: <laughs> that is an interesting way to ask that question um Man, this this question in and of itself, has got so much uh, political push and different opinions. But as a superintendent,
1: what about from a pure, pure altruistic compassion and kindness element? So fuck the politics as a human being to make it safest for our firefighters and safest for our community, even if that means enforcing that you're not allowed to build in area X, what would be the, the safest way for us to do
2: it? Well, I think I think part of it is we need to reduce the amount of people, you know, building into the woods. That's one piece of the pie the other piece of the pie here is we do have a forest management issue. Like we're not able to get to the amount of fuels treatment as we have been able to in the past. And, and I know that might rub some people wrong, but that's, that's the, that's just what it is. Like our fires, because our fires are fires are going longer. They're more intense and they, we call it the fire year. Now we haven't made an adjustment and there's no time to do fuels reduction work. So our forests are just overgrowing. They just, they just are, they're getting choked out. And and because the people are up in there now, it's really difficult to, uh, get into those areas and do fuels reduction work. Um, those to me would be the first, those to me would be the, the two main ones. Like we need to, um, maybe look at how people are expanding into the woods um, and provide them like legit education so that they can maybe do some of the work on their own around their areas. And then we need to have probably a workforce that is strictly for fuels management and separate fire from fuels where our identity as an agency has changed and we haven't changed with, with the times,
1: brilliant. You see, I think that's that's something that I see from the outside. I give you a perfect example where I used to work, was uh, the fire department for a famous theme park here in Florida, and they wouldn't allow any back burning, and they'd even have them out, you know, fighting sw- uh, muck fires for, for days and days and days because they didn't even want smoke wafting into their theme park. The reality is, and you know, some of my wildland fr- friends here, you know, kind of told me this as well, is that they needed a backbone, they needed a checker, they needed to, you know, to put those aligns, and it may not be as aesthetically pleasing, and it might put some smoke in your theme park for a bit, but it's going to be so much safer for the men and women, and it's going to reduce the amount of fires that you ultimately get next to that theme park.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a, that's a big education piece and something we run into all the time, every time we do a prescribed fire, because we're, you know, we're near South Lake Tahoe or the Sacramento Valley. And so our smoke can either go down into Sacramento Valley and people get pissed or it can go down to South Lake Tahoe. And people get pissed. So a lot of it's education, you know? And, and so it's uh doubling down on the education piece. I mean, it's going to be really hard to keep people from moving into the woods. I mean, I love the woods. I love living in the woods. So I, I understand why. But we need to do a better job of uh, educating folks and also providing them the ability to maybe do some of the work around their house uh, more more freely. And then, uh, like I said, uh, fuels man like we have a fire year. Our firefighters. Well, first off, I don't know how far I want to go and get into this, but I'll do it. We're not. uh, My agency doesn't consider us firefighters. We're forestry technicians. And so, because and it's a it's an idea that has started a long, long, long time ago. And um, as our uh, environment has changed, we primarily fight fire now instead of doing fuels management work. And we need to get back to looking at fuels management, but also have a fire agency that's ready to kick ass on some of these epic wildland fires, because I don't think that's going to slow down anytime soon. If we stayed doing the same thing we're doing.
1: Yeah, well, thank you for that. I mean, it's, it's again, it's just an opportunity for two fellow firefighters to have a discussion of how yeah, can we yeah, do it sure. better? Because like you said, when politics gets into it, when this taxpayer doesn't want smoke wafting in from prescribed burn, and this other one wants to keep all their eucalyptus trees around their property, and you know, it ends up becoming extremely dangerous for the homeowner, extremely dangerous for the responding firefighters. So whether it's comfortable or not, these discussions have to be had because you know, one firefighter lost in a wildland fire is, is tragic. One family lost in a wildland fire is tragic. So this needs to you know keep being discussed in a, in a in a courageous uh you know um transparent way so that we circumnavigate politics and we get to the root of the issue so we can minimize the threat to our men and women that fight in fires and the residents
2: yeah so. i mean it's all about sharing perspective too i'm willing to share my perspective i think uh you know so i i think you're 100% right
1: now, what about um, the actual frequency and size of the fires? Uh, I've, ha- I've heard several people in the wildland community with you guys actually seeing it firsthand that have uh, suggested that maybe there is a kind of change in the climate that's contributing to more, whether it's more debris now because they're not getting as much rain, whatever it is. Over your 20 career, have you seen an increase in growth and, and severity in these fires?
2: yeah a big fire uh the first five years of my career was like twenty thousand acres and last in California, and last year I was on a fire that was a million so i mean that's it's unprecedented stuff, and every year seems to be just a progression in the wrong direction as far as size and intensity. We didn't have enough people last year to fight the fires just in california it's uh without a doubt, fires are getting bigger. And like I said, it could be, it, it is most definitely a host of things that are contributing to that. Um, like we talked about a few of them, people getting closer into the rural areas, you know, on suboptimal management of uh, our forest lands. And, you know, you could probably throw climate change in there. Um, we had beetle kill, beetles roll through California and decimate like, thousands and thousands of acres of trees and so now we just have basically these 200 feet trees that are it's like tall grass but just trees <laughs> so I mean there's a bunch of uh, different factors but the fire environment is 100% getting is getting more aggressive and a lot harder to manage
1: yeah and then conversely our resources well not conversely it's the wrong choice I'm just loaded the question then are resources matching the demand or are you having to fight those with the same or even less
2: resources less we are not matching the demand straight up okay we so, so lack, i could have loaded lack, it lack. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay we're, we're asking. we're i mean <laughs> yeah we're we don't have the uh, right amount of air support we don't have the right amount of people uh one of the things we're we're running into now and it's not uh to talk shit about any other resource but we we are relying more and more on contract contractor type of resources. And so like we, we, and so we get, you're getting into these hairy situations with lots and lots of intense fire out there. And you don't have the people like, uh, like folks from my agency or other like agencies there that have the specialty knowledge to manage these fires correctly. And so you're doing, A lot more trying to do a lot more with very, very little. And it's very unsuccessful in the way that works. Um, last year, for example, we were on a fire, uh, that million acre fire I was telling about the August complex. And uh there was one hotshot crew on a division that was almost 25 miles long. And usually a division would be like three, maybe five miles long, and sometimes you get like five hotshot crews in there, depending on how uh, that depending on the work, but one to two hotshot crews is not an abnormal thing. And now you're in a position where you have a 25 mile acre, uh, chunk of ground, um, on this division and one hotshot crew and the rest are all contracted employees that have no idea what they've gotten themselves into. And so like, I've, I've told you, like, it's about keeping people safe at that point. Like you can't do a whole lot. You're trying to um, get down in communicate communities and telling them like, Hey, it's time to evacuate or You're trying to keep people safe. Like that's really the, the, one of the biggest parts about my job is making sure my crew is safe. And, uh, it's frustrating when you can't, you know, it's frustrating when you can't do what you know to be right because you lack the people or lack the resources. But I mean, this is where we're at. It's unfor- super unfortunate and um yeah I don't really know where to go from there honestly yeah well with
1: you know with us both having a human performance background and a lot of the stuff that we've unpacked today when it comes to you know the hours of sleep deprivation what worries me too is you have men and women doing more with less the the percentage chance of someone getting hurt or killed continues to rise
2: yeah no it's 100%, man. Like, I mean, there's, there's days where, because we lacked resources, we were pulling 48 hour shifts straight with no sleep because fire was moving into communities and there's nobody there to, um, notify folks. (laughs) You know, it's like, what the hell do you do then? Like you have this like integrity issue, like this moral, like feeling like, oh, well, my guys are incredibly tired they've been working all day i'm incredibly tired we're trying to make these powerful decisions that affect people's lives i can't just bail like (laughs) but at the other but the other side of the sword there you're like well if i do this for too much longer one of my dudes is going to get hurt probably that that risk of that potential risk is just climbing higher and higher and higher and we never have gotten any support or a we have always we had great support from incident management teams this last year um, and divisions and things like this and and they let us you know manage our cruise fatigue pretty good, and that's actually one of the positive things that came out of this the, the utilization of whoop is it's been able to get us to ask for more days off in between fires and and also on assignments and so but it's you're 100 percent right. The risk is not going away, and it's probably increasing the chances of people getting people getting hurt to some re- in some regard. Yeah.
1: Well I think that element that kept you guys working is something that I think is is uh it's a kind of not a double edged sword, that's the wrong word. Um it's it's something that works against ourselves because you ask any, you know, police officer, firefighter if they're put in a situation, will you go and facilitate that rescue? We're all going to say yes. We have a volunteer fire service in, in the U.S. that does just that for free. Some out in the boonies where I I understand the need for a volunteer, many of which are now in very suburban areas where it shouldn't be volunteer, it should be paid. And we just lost uh, Jared Lloyd from Spring Valley Fire this last week in in a nursing home you know so he was making entry as a, as a as a complete volunteer but the the negative side of that is we love this job we want to help people but because of that sadly there's administrations that know that it's okay because they're going to do it anyway so we don't need to get more staff they'll you know we'll just we'll just force them on overtime or like you know you were doing we'll just get them to work two days straight and again it's not malice but Our burning desire, our why sometimes works against us getting the environment that we need to work safely because they know come hell or high water, we're going to make it happen.
2: Oh, yeah, man, for sure. I mean, I think Jordan Peterson actually talks about this where it's like, you know, you're standing, you're having a conversation with somebody uh, face to face and, and one person just makes a very slow one inch step towards you just enough to get you to step, take a step back, but you continue the conversation. And he just repeats this process over and over and over again until you find yourself in the, in a corner and you're like looking around, you're like, how the hell did I get here? And I think that's a lot of what's going on, at least within my agency, is we've been asked to do these things over and over and over again. And we just step up to the plate every time like, hey, we're going to do this, we're going to do this, we're going to do this because we feel like we can. But now we're in a corner <laughs> and we're like, how the hell do we get out of here? Like, this isn't sustainable. <laughs>
1: Yeah, no, exactly. And I think that's just it is it, it, it needs everyone else in the room to be like, all right, step the fuck back. <laughs> we need to, yeah, exactly. we need to do this. But like you said, it, yeah. we need to unify the voices because we, we always make it work. That's what firefighters do. That's what police officers do. So, yeah, you know, so but we have, to yeah, but we have to be our own advocates too and have that same passion for helping others for creating an environment for us to be better at helping others and, you know, have a full career without dying along the way.
2: Yeah, that's
1: definitely. Right. Well then transitioning to one other area before we get to your uh, David Goggins challenge. Um <laughs> Brooke actually came through the the um corrections crew. Um you know she was the prison crew while uh wildland firefighter. Oh, okay. So awesome. another yeah, so we're talking about mentorship. Here's a young lady who's hanging out with the wrong crowd. Was, was arrested and basically, um, you know, imprisoned because she happened to be in the same crew as, same car as someone that had a weapon that had a history, um, you know, guilty by association. She, through that, had the mentorship in the prison system of finding herself on the crew and then actually ended up working for Cal Fire, which I thought was an incredible program. So just, just tell me of your experiences of, of, um, working with those kind of crews on the mountain and, and your philosophy on, you know, on, on, being able to transition from, from the prison setting to full time in that
2: capacity? Uh, well, shoot, working with those dudes on the fire line is legit. I mean, they're not hotshot crews, but they're a bunch of hard work and sons of bitches that like to get after it. And uh, we've utilized them in many ways to help assist on a very various things. Um, they also hit us up all the time. We see them on fire and like, Hey, I'm about to parole here in the next couple of weeks or year or whatever, like how could I come work for you? And honestly, I think that is a is a, I don't I don't want to say undertapped resource, but it could be tapped into more for sure. And I, I have two people on my crew right now that I supervise that are ex inmates. Um and something that's really great about that is we I tell myself, because we have to have, you know, Working with inmates training as part of our critical refresher when we bring our folks on. And something I, I, we try and say to our folks is like, hey, a lot of these, a lot of these people are in here because are, are a lot of these people that are in here are, are you guys, you know, they just got caught. It's like, don't, don't put yourself up on this pedestal like you're higher or more or whatever than a lot of these folks in here. And um, so that's one thing. And then the other thing too is like these guys, when they come work for me, are, or have worked for me, their life knowledge and perspective on things is pretty fascinating. They understand the opportunity that's in front of them and having an opportunity fighting fire, whether it's for Cal Fire or for us. And they are most of the time like pretty badass individuals, and all they needed was an opportunity and uh, and someone to take a chance on them. And I'm all about that kind of stuff because I mean like I said I've gone through my career working with a handful of these folks and two of the people on my crew right now um, I hope someday run this crew when I leave and they're both ex-inmates
1: That's just I mean it's so good to hear and when Brooke was telling me the story I'm like well there we go there's the kind of rehabilitation you know mentorship prison role that took someone mm-hmm. that could have gone down the even worth path, worth path Oh, my God, I can't even talk mm-hmm. now. Worst. Oh, my God. I'm going to stroke a thing over here. Even worse path. <laughs> there we go. That's yeah. a tongue twister. To yeah. um, you know, but but instead, she went through the prison system and actually was was raised up. But then her, her um, arrest record wasn't held against her. Cal Fire were like, no, that's fine. You can come yeah. work for us now. And those, yeah, sure. I think that should be a model for, for many, many programs in, in our prisons, I think. I mean, the, we know that locking someone in a box does not make them a better member of society. We've proven that over hundreds of years. But some of these programs, whether the ones they have in Norway or whether it's the, you know, the, the prison hand crew system here that you have in, in California, I think it's incredible. And, and like you said, now you would have these men, and I couldn't agree with you anymore. Most of us listening, if we've been caught, would have a record by now, myself included. So, you know, having that ability to turn a negative into a positive is huge. So uh, thank you for telling me your perspective, because that story needs to be heard. I don't think a lot of people understand that.
2: Yeah, and and really do, man. And these guys are some of my best friends, man. I mean, and I don't mean to like say like, oh, you know, like anyways, they sit in the truck with me all the time. We're driving miles and miles and miles all the time to fires and we talk about life. Like we talk about the shit, the the crazy shit and they open up to me and they tell me there's stuff that they've done and I open up to them and we share our perspectives. Right. And, uh, and I can't tell you how many times these people have made me think about really cool shit because they understand like how beautiful the things in front of them are because someone took a chance on them or someone gave them an opportunity and how, how, uh, how much gratitude they have for stuff. And they're the first people when things get rough and people get all pissy and like whatever towards the end of the season when everybody's just dog shit tired. They're the happiest people on the crew, hands down. And uh, they can change the, they can change the whole outlook of a day just based on their attitude. And um, I'm super. I, I like I said. I'm anybody out there. Like I talk to these people all the time. Like you, you give me a call if you're interested in a job. If I can't hire you, like I'll try and set you up in the right direction because. Um, we all have skills and as a mentor talking to these people, like, I think you guys, we all need to understand how impactful we can, we can be, we think that we don't have that much impact on people's lives, but sometimes all you gotta do is listen to these folks and all you gotta do is show them some kindness in a way to get out of the world that got them in trouble in the first place and their lives get turned around. And I think that's a super powerful thing.
1: I couldn't agree more. That's that's so good to hear. Well, speaking of kindness and doing something good, tell me how you came across the four by four by forty eight challenge that David Goggins <laughs> threw out there, and tell me about the fundraising that you
2: did. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for asking. Um, well, I've always been. I was. I used to be an ultra endurance athlete, like back in the early two thousands and mid two thousands. So um i was i've always been interested in long distance kind of athletics in that in that kind of time and so but i haven't done it in a while and so my brother legitimately uh who used to be on a hot shot crew with me and then he moved uh over to the hot shot crew i work on now and then i followed him anyways he's a redwood city firefighter structure guy he texts me and he goes hey do you want to run 48 miles with me on whatever date and i said I was thinking in my head, I was like, this son of a bitch is talking about the Goggins thing. I was like, God damn it. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, you know what? Hell yeah. So I texted him back. Yes. And, uh, away we went. And so we just picked, we picked two charities we wanted to, to work for. Um, I, obviously I picked the wildland firefighter foundation cause they do a lot of amazing stuff for, for my community. Um, that I am a part of as far as like people getting injured, mental health problems, uh, the full gambit, you need something. They are, are just about a no questions asked organization and they will help you. And it's, it's a pretty amazing things, the amount of stories they had. And then my brother picked the, the, uh, firefighters burn Institute, which is based out of Sacramento. And they do a lot of stuff around education and, and they don't just help firefighters but they also help kids and um and things like this so i thought that was super cool you know like we do fundraisers all the time within our within my agency you know you sign up for a race and you you know you give them 20 bucks or 50 bucks whatever the entry fee is and you know it goes to the wildland firefighter foundation or whatever a foundation you're working for there but i thought it was really really powerful to two guys raised five thousand dollars for two different charities and it was really just two guys running 48 miles and posting some shit on instagram i mean i i thought that was i thought that was legit and obviously this is all like a byproduct of david goggins and a byproduct of us doing it and then a byproduct of us committing to this thing and then the thousands of people that donated money like that It's just like, I don't know. Goggins has been posting things all about this and like how powerful that that whole experience was. And I agree. Um, The whole time I was running, we were doing this thing. Like I was just had all these sobering feelings of gratitude. And like, uh, it was unlike any race I've ever ran. Yeah, it was
1: amazing to see. I think he, he raised 200 grand and was going to split it five ways. But he said he got so many, you know, heartfelt messages from all these different charities. I know Operation During Wario was one of them um, that I just did a, a help with the gala the other day. But um, yeah, and it was uh, it was four miles every four hours for tw- for 48, wasn't it? So so you, you were having uh, to do it through the night for two nights in a row.
2: Yeah, so it started. Yeah, thank you. I didn't even talk about what that was. <laughs> yeah, four miles uh, every four hours, 48 hours. It started at 8 o'clock p.m., on friday and went to i think what was it four o'clock uh p.m on sunday if i've got that right and so yeah you just woke up every it it was i mean a lot of people keep asking me like oh how how'd it go how'd it feel and like you know uh yes it was difficult there's things about it that were hard um for sure but i never was in a spot personally where i was I always had something to compare it to that I did. That was harder. So I never was like, okay, like I, I might have to hang it up or this is the hardest thing in my life. That never really crossed my mind. Um, and I don't know if that's because I've done a bunch of ultras before and I've, I've ran 50 straight miles and many times. And the job that I do is just endurance, knock your dick in the dirt type of work and staying up for straight 48 hours. I've done numerous times. So like, There wasn't necessarily a time where I was like, this is the hardest thing I've ever done, which was, which was good because I was able to reflect on all the hard stuff that I did do (laughs) and apply it in real time. And it was, uh, so that was cool. But, um, yeah, we stayed at my brother's house and every, every four hours we'd jump up and run and I would try and get my, I think besides two of the laps, um, I, at two of the laps I did in like 50 minutes cause me and my brother were filming a bunch of stuff and, and trying to, you know, get the good word out. But at one point, you know, after we, those first two laps I was like, God, oh, this isn't sustainable. I'm not going to do these four miles in 50 minutes. It's going to take me forever. And so I would try and run them four miles as fast as I could. And so I got most of them done somewhere between 34 and 36 minutes. And then I would eat a little snack rest to the top of the hour. And then just my knowledge of like sleep cycles and things like this, I would try and at the during the evening hours, I would try and sleep for about an hour in 20 minutes or so. I'd set an, an alarm for an hour and 20 minutes during the night hours. And I would wake myself up so that I didn't get too far or I wouldn't get into like deep REM sleep. And then uh, I would stretch, just pound some water. um, And that gave me about an hour ish, 45 minutes or so to kind of get warmed up because the, the tightness and the soreness was the stuff that, that was getting me. So it was more about trying to get loose before the next lap.
1: Now with you being a hotshot for 20 years, what do you, when you look back now, what were some of the tools that you use that, allowed you to be physically resilient and and keep doing this profession
2: um i would say uh looking at the faces around you and trying not to show weakness (laughs) (laughs) like when (laughs) is like you know i don't know i think it was like maybe the macho attitude or my ego or whatever you know i i can't when you when you talk when you're the person that's always talking about physical fitness and nutrition and how to diet and like you're the strongest one of the stronger person on the crew and and you become this person. And so when you show weakness, you lose a little bit of credibility. So I was, you know, that kind of, that kind of like extra extrinsic motivation f- would fuel me in the moments of like hard line construction or whatever, like, Hey, like, all right, I can keep going. Look at them. They're all, you know, they're all falling apart, but I'm, I'm going. And that I would use that as like fuel to keep moving. Um, but that was, that was pretty much, you know, as a young fireman, you know, that was it. And, um, I think now a days when I, when I'm talking about like physically challenging stuff, it's, it's not so much to make someone else look bad anymore or, or make myself look better than anybody else. It's just, I know that if things are uncomfortable, uh, and even if they're really uncomfortable, I'm about to make a breakthrough and, <laughs> on who I am as a person. I'm going to learn something. And I've been, I, uh, I, I embrace those really, really difficult physical challenges. And I actually think it's important that we all put ourselves in those positions at t- from time to time.
1: Absolutely. What about mobility? Cause I mean, that's the biggest thing I think for a lot of older
2: responders. Yeah. Mobility, like for me and <clears throat> off season for firefighting is all about getting in shape and getting ready, being injury free day one, but ready to, to, to fight fire. You transition into fire season, it's really hard to physically train or PT is what we call it um, during the fire season because you're out on assignment. So the things that I really cue into is recovery, mobility, and maintenance. Uh, Our population is not very mobile. Your your population probably isn't as well because I think it's just firefighters in general. But uh, we see very uh, unmobile uh, ankles, uh, really unmobile hips and shoulders, which leads to all sorts of things like back pain, knee problems, neck problems. And so uh, we incorporate mobility into our program um, pretty heavily because the more mobile you are, the less prone to injury you're going to be. Brilliant. Love
1: it. All right, well then... I wanna to transition to some closing questions. We've been chatting for almost two and a half hours. I had a funny feeling <laughs> this is gonna be a long conversation. Yeah. Um,
2: sorry, man.
1: No, but it's good. There's so much to unpack and then we haven't even I mean we've barely even delved into the true human performance side, but uh that that'll be for part two. Um so the first question I'd love to ask, is there a book that you love to recommend? It can be related to what we've discussed today or completely unrelated?
2: Um okay. Can I can I give like three? Please. Okay, cool. Uh, the, first, the first book, which is amazing that a lot of people know about, um, a friend of mine helped write it, is called uh, Becoming a Supple Leopard. So I think that's an amazing book. Uh, if we're talking about physical fitness, mobility, and just um, optimizing the physical body, that's a great place to start. Um, a book I give to my guys is called As a Man Thinketh. Uh, that's a great short read. It talks about basically the power of your thoughts and then the last book um, I'll recommend, which uh, really connected a lot of dots for me as a person, is called Awareness by Anthony DeMello.
1: Anthony DeMello. All right. You mentioned uh, Supple Leopard, and that was Kelly Starrett. Who was the friend that helped write that?
2: Uh, Glenn Cordoza. Is the, he helped author that book.
1: Excellent. Very cool. Yeah, Kelly's mm-hmm. someone I still need to get on the show at some point. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. All right. Next question. Is there a, a movie that you love?
2: a movie Whew, man there's like movies um that's that's like the I'll just go with the first thing that popped into my head how about that and that was Braveheart <laughs> uh, I, there's a ton of movies I like all kinds of movies but that was the first one that popped in there
1: brilliant all right what about a documentary any of those that you've seen that you really like
2: enjoyed mm. Dude, that Alex Arnold movie where he's free, free solo, I think it's called. Yeah. That one was pretty powerful. I think my palms were sweating the whole time. I think that was probably the most recent documentary that I was pretty pumped up on. Brilliant. Yeah,
1: that's another person I'd love to get on one day, just talking about you yeah. know, training and fear and all those kind of areas. Absolutely. Well, speaking of that, so is there a person you would recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world?
2: Yeah, man. There's a, there's a guy named Matt Holmstrom. He's, uh, he's from my line of work. Uh, he's a mentor of mine, and he is a brilliant man um, and has a lot of perspective. I think he would be an amazing person to have on. I also think there's uh, another individual you could have on talking about the, the pros and cons of this job. Uh, his name's Lucas Mayfield and runs the grassroots effort um, that's happening outside of our agency to sort of help advocate for firefighters.
1: Excellent. Two great uh, suggestions. Thank you so much. All right. Well, then the last question before we talk about where we can find you online, what do you do to decompress?
2: Uh, What I do to decompress is, uh, I kind of talked about it. I I have a very disciplined uh, life. And I make sure that I am successful in achieving um, my, the structure where I, uh, uh, physical fitness is something, long runs, mountain bike rides, uh, things like this. But also really appreciating the things in front of me um, and recognizing how special that stuff is. And, and primarily what I'm talking about is uh, spending really good time with my family.
1: Brilliant. Well, mentioning uh, the family for a second, the Vice uh, News guys did a a great piece on you, and there was a moment where it was one of your supervisors that actually left. You know, partly I think because of the financial side. Um, yeah. And they asked him about, you know, do you regret, or I think it was your, I don't know exactly how they framed it, but basically, do you regret the impact of your profession on your ability to to be around your children and he almost immediately and we can all recognize the same response (laughs) he choked up you know you could tell absolutely he was flooded with that he did the most amazing thing did an incredible profession was very you know um selfless in what he did and his family were as well but that is an element in a lot of the people listening you mentioned stepping off the hamster wheel because of the impact that you were seeing on your family are you is this something that you see yourself doing for a long time or are you considering transitioning to something else
2: I want to retire as a hotshot superintendent. That is my goal right now. Um, because there's a, I, you know what? It's, I don't want to say that in, in absolute. I don't really want to talk in absolute in anything that I talk about, but um, I find, you know, I, I see a challenge uh, to be someone that can be resilient and mentor people correctly to guide them away from some of the pitfalls that we see from folks that uh, have those feelings of reg- maybe I don't know reg- I don't know if regrets the right word but those moments that choke you up like we we're talking about from my boss Aaron and uh, and I feel like whether I can do it or not I'm I'm up to the challenge to be the person that can be that have that resiliency and have an actual very successful career and help people uh be successful as well and that's kind of the that's that's kind of what i want to do i don't know if it'll be possible but i'm going to give it my goddamn best beautiful
1: all right well then for people that have listened that you know obviously there's so much to pull out i mean you've got your mental health story you've got obviously the work you do with human performance and your career as a hot shot where are the best places for people to find out more about
2: you or reach out to you online? Yeah. I mean, you can, uh, I'm on Instagram pretty frequently. Um, Just Ben Strahan, B-E-N-S-T-R-A-H-A-N. And you'll hear me talking about this stuff like crazy on there. that's pretty much how I use that platform nowadays is just to be real. Um, You can also find me on tactical athletics Um, that's another Instagram thing that I got going on. Um, those are the two best places to find me.
1: Beautiful. Well, Ben, I just want to say thank you. It's been an amazing conversation. I feel like we barely scratched the surface, but, uh, that's what (laughs) always happens when you, you know, like I said, you meet people that, you know, have so much that you want to pull out of them. But, um, firstly, just thank you for, for telling your story. I mean, the, the courage it takes to, to speak, you know, and, and, and be transparent about what you went through. Is exactly what we need to hear. You know, you've got these alpha males and females that are out there on SWAT teams as hotshots, smoke jumpers, whatever it is. And those are the people that I think if they hear, if we hear that they've been to some dark places, then a lot of us look ourselves and go, well, then why am I saying I can't? You know, if this Navy SEAL went through some shit, why can James Gearing, you know, have this facade that I, I'm better than that? So it's so important that we hear that. And it's so important that we also hear the journey out of that so thank you for telling your story thank you for your courage and uh, I truly appreciate you come on the show today
2: I don't know who connected us man but I'm very grateful for whoever that person was and um, James thank you for giving me the opportunity to, to speak with people I appreciate it